Hello, and there we are. Hi. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Camilla. Hello, everyone in the audience. It's nice to meet you again. And uh, what we're going to do today is we talk about modern web development. And modern web development is a quite important thing because I would say the majority of software we use as human beings these days is made with web technologies or it's close to it. And web is more and more, let's say, important for us in the world. So it started with, let's say, early browsers 20 years ago, a little bit more than that. And today we have it basically everywhere. We have it even on our watches, if, if you really want to have it. So web development is quite important. And I, I wrote an article last Sunday about the story. And I, I researched a little bit about the names of the people. And it's quite a long thing already. People were really working a lot in that area. There was a lot of, let's say, enhancements, a lot of evolutions. So when we think back to things as in, in the early stages, let's say, even before HTML4, which uh, was the era when before I started, that was an entirely different thing than that what we know today. And the approaches were entirely different. So this is the topic today. So I don't want to do a monologue here. So first of all, hello, Camilla. Hello, Dennis. Nice to have you here as well. So maybe do you want to introduce yourself a little bit regarding that topic? So what, who are you and why are you here and talking about modern web development today? Maybe starting with Camilla today. Sure. So I'm Camilla. I'm a junior front-end developer. So for me, my background is that I actually studied biology. I decided to change careers, did a book boot camp, and then I was actually studying on my own for a couple of months until I got my first job where I'm still working there. And for me, mostly is like I did learn JavaScript, like vanilla JavaScript, did a couple of projects there, but most of my experience is doing React. So that's my background. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. You. I don't. I don't know why I'm here. I, I was told we have cookies. Uh, yeah, I forgot the cookies. Every time I want <laughs> to buy cookies and eat the cookies during the stream, I forget that every time. I oh, never mind. So I, I'm a I'm a technical coach and a leadership coach, and this topic sort of touches on like the really annoying bits that I that I usually <laughs> encounter in companies because the whole. Using any kind of a general purpose tool, there's usually some evil coupling involved that is very difficult to navigate when you're using general purpose tools like databases or frameworks. Very passionate about this project. TypeScript is, TypeScript is also one of my most, let's say, native languages that I used to use or still use from time to time. And I use, I do a lot of katas in TypeScript as well with engineers who specialize in backend and frontend work. Yeah, I, th I think everybody has something to gain from this topic. Yeah. Yeah, especially when we talk, let's say, when we talk about modern web development, it's hard to not talk about JavaScript. Actually, the times of ActionScript are luckily over. So there is not much you can do other than JavaScript when it comes to web. TypeScript, of course, which is uh, an abstracted version of that, a superset version. Yes, and me, so let's say next to being CTO, when I was an engineer, I was mostly working in the front-end area. Around, I would say around 15 years ago, we started to create frameworks with vanilla JavaScript back then. It was quite hard because we needed to use tools of, it was a library. I don't think it's a framework, but prototype JS, which was actually a library, which did nothing else than having some kind of normalization between browsers and environments mm -hmm. and gave yeah, you this, this. 
if Paul if you're right and we had this dollar sign was introduced then I think it was prototype was which introduced it it was not jQuery and Mutools were the first ones that had this Mutu, kind of... uh, Mutools uh, came after Prototype, I think. And with that one, we created frameworks actually in the B2B area because that was an interesting story. We had an application which was closed source in ASP.NET and we needed to customize it. And the only way we found is uh, was to actually, when the site was loaded, to update the entire site and mutate the entire site with JavaScript back then. Mm -hmm. And out of that, we, we created basically a framework and the framework was pretty close to, to, to the ideas which were later on developed with Bootcamp and then um, things like Angular. It was class-based back then, but the classes of prototype, not of JavaScript. There were no classes back then. And this is how I started to got into JavaScript in a deeper way. It was There was no TypeScript back then. So actually, we if there was, we weren't aware of that. There was some, I think some, how was it called? Closure was there to have mm -hmm. some form of uh, type checking and stuff like this, mm -hmm. um, but nothing like we know from TypeScript today. So it was a very immature way of developing. And when you were talking to backend people like Java people, C sharp people, PHP, even not PHP had the same problem with JavaScript people was that they weren't seen really as developers. It was like uh, loose typers, right? And yeah, but um, it evolved. And this is what I meant in the beginning. It evolved pretty much. So when we take a look at modern web development, back then it was full stack development. And today we have um, the split between front end and back end um, development. Mm -hmm. And um, interesting part of that is um, that when you take a look at modern, so no, take a look at projects, no matter in which company I join as, as a fellow or in my own or whatever, it is always like the majority of stuff you do is front end technology. And um, this is interesting. It was different in the past, maybe because it was full stack, maybe because only for, was only for me in the past like that. But today mm -hmm. it's really like 80% front end, 20% back end. This is the ratio I see. So you always have these large front end teams, even with product people in a front end team, but in the back end. There is never a product person. There is never a client. It's just one or two developers sitting there in smaller teams and working some APIs out. And even sometimes there is no backend developer and the frontend developer is, are doing this, but modern frameworks are going more into direction again of having the backend for frontend architectures where they do some backend stuff. Um, Jamstacks, for example, are working like that. So you have the more, more the full stack idea again. So this is my story. I, I completely avoided jQuery successfully. So I don't know. I used it from time to time, so I know how it works, but I never created an application with that. And I'm pretty proud of that because that was, that was not good. So in my opinion, jQuery was one of those things. It was very influential and it had huge impact still until today on mm -hmm. the web. It's not that impactful anymore, but jQuery was Oh, even putting more, let's say, to the point that, let's say, front-end developers are not real developers. It's more you're manipulating things instead of really developing things. And that was the idea of jQuery. You could query elements and manipulate them. And um, this is what we tried to avoid. We wanted to always have a foundation where you... You know, where you have mm -hmm. some form of MVC pattern on all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And this wasn't really possible with jQuery. So it was, yeah, no. And yeah, this is what I avoided. And then there was a time where Boots, uh, Bootstrap came out and those kind of things. And then Angular. And with Angular, it was the first one, which was the one of the reactive. I think it was the first one. I'm not sure. It wasn't the so first one, actually. It wasn't the first one. So what was the no, first one? The first one was actually Flex. 
I think Angular was heavily inspired by Flex. I think Angular followed Flex one to one. So That's just awesome. before, so in the, in this family of languages, I, I think it's difficult not to talk about Flash, because Flash was also based on ECMAScript. But it didn't mm. follow the JavaScript standard that was in the browsers. And mm -hmm. that's also one of the reasons why Flash became so popular before Apple killed it, is that the the runtime that was pushed to, by Adobe and back then by Macromedia onto Windows, especially, was being updated much faster than the browsers. So if you wanted to have bleeding edge JavaScript or ECMAScript, Flash was a much better platform for that. It, it came with other things. But then just before Flash died, Macromedia, I think it was still Macromedia, not Adobe. I think it was still Macromedia then. It was still Macromedia, yeah. Flex, and, and particularly Flex 4 came out just before it got killed. And what Flex had was two-way data binding. So you could define mm -hmm. components in your sort of page or structure with XML configs that you could label them as highlight them. And then in the code, you could type, you could create objects because it was following the ECMAScript standard that had classes, but because the browser JavaScript still hasn't for a long time, actually, over mm -hmm. 10 years later. Then you could annotate, type annotate, very Java-esque. You could type annotate classes and methods and properties in your flex is backend code, let's say, that lived in the browser to, to, by direct, to bidirectionally bind data with a front-end component, which is exactly how Angular works. So that would be, I think, the first one that every Flash developer and front-end developer that I saw use Flex, they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. I don't have to do that weird jQuery thing where I render the markup and then I wait, and mm -hmm. then I forget about the markup. Unload, yeah, yeah. On. And I try to get the DOM element because I, I, I created the, the markup in the server and I gave the markup an ID so that when I let go, I can find the DOM element because I, don't, I don't care about the markup. I care about the DOM elements that get mm -hmm. created and then I hijack them. You had I, this, you had this DOM uh, colon loaded uh, event. Yeah, I remember you that. had, you were yeah. hydrating, you, you were translating, here's my markup. What I really want is behavior on the DOM element. I don't know how to manipulate the markup. The browser knows how to manipulate the markup. So the markup was created on the backend and the backend didn't know how to attach behavior to the markup because it had to go into the DOM first. That's why we had tools like jQuery. And then we had those weird frameworks that published jQuery code on a PHP backend to automatically outwire certain things to get images. That was then a mess that then mm -hmm. Angular and React started solving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that the next step was then actually to move away. So we did that for quite a long time, working with that framework. It's still running today. It's still used today. But it's in a legacy state already. So it's, and we it's, have a uh, comment. We have a comment in chat. That was the same time that Microsoft Silverlight uh, came out. Ah, Silverlight. Yeah. Silverlight. Yeah. I never used it actually, yeah. but yeah, uh, I know how old you are if you remember Microsoft Silverlight. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first website I ever created was with Flash. It was a yeah. a clan website. I, I told you already about that. Mm -hmm. Team Fortress, classic actually, when it came out in Half Life One mod. And we needed to have a website and it was so cool to do this animated stuff with Flash and mm -hmm. then put some ECMAScript or action script, what it was called, between that and load it. And uh, yeah, you need just you needed to explain everyone how to install Flash. It was like that back then. But uh, yeah, I missed the idea of Flash was, uh, was actually quite cool to, to work with. It was Flash funny. Flash was essentially yeah. React 10 years ago. That was essentially React. 
with that, that it, it was w way ahead of its time and then the browsers were so slow when it comes to enhancement today yeah. when you start new and fresh as a as a front-end developer you you have an entire different problem set than you had had in the past so it's entirely different though so it, it's it's totally evolved you have so many matured frameworks out there and you have this movement which we want to talk about today back to vanilla because the web standards are so good you actually don't need frameworks anymore to work effectively others say you should because it's about developer experience about performance uh, so development performance others say you should go vanilla because of performance reasons Svelte is mm -hmm. between both worlds and this and that so those are exactly actually uh, interesting topics but that let's do to just to end up the story we ended up with react I think five mm -hmm. to six years ago we started and we are pretty happy with that actually I have to say and just for context I'm currently a react user myself Camilla as well we are on the same team Exactly. And I think, Dennis, you used React as well, right? Or in yes, your teams, I was. Right? I was always with the bleeding edge development. So in, in the company that I was at the time, HTTP, and then just before I, I left DLabs, I, I was using, it, it was my first time touching anything microservice related just before they got popularized. And I started doing two-way data binding in JavaScript. So I was exploring Angular, like the precursor to Angular, Rivets, JS with handlebars. Rivets, JS, those who remember it, yeah. <laughs> that one person probably. Rivets JS was the precursor to what we now know as two-way data binding that got then replaced by virtual DOMs in Angular 2 and the older, the, the newer React, the more mature React. Mm -hmm. um, but back then I was a avid jQuery user. I think I spent 10 years of my career. Uh, no, that's too much. Like seven years of my career in, in using jQuery understanding it, adapting it, and migrating it, you know, migrating from jQuery 1.2 to 1.4, and then later on 1.6, 1.8. Those were the big hurdles back then because, yeah. It had but a fancy it, uh, website, I remember. It was one of the first so, fancy framework or library websites I mean, out there. I think it's important to mention like why these things exist, right? Because if you look at any kind of programming language, it's very hard to say, here's my program. And there's this hugely complex graphics driver that every machine has. And now I'm just going to put pixels on the screen. Mm. Like this translation of I have a thing here and it'll put pixels on your screen and it'll animate them. That's an extremely complex problem, right? So there, there I, I think there are less than 1% of languages in the world, programming languages that allow you seamless frameworkless graphics manipulation directly to the screen and really the the issue with most front-end development even if it's desktop front-end development like gui development graphical mm -hmm. user interface development is that for any pixels to show up on my screen you need to use some kind of api windows has at least 20 of them by now linux has three and all of them are bad all of them are terrible <laughs> to code in uh, and then the web has a few and then everybody was and this is the competition and the web won. That's the idea here. Mm. Except for certain exceptions where OpenGL dominates. And then you have exceptions that are then platform specific for DirectX, for example. And then the, the splits with CUDA and the things we do on the graphics card that isn't. But there, but there we saw a significant shift towards web in the last five years. So many yeah, applications web, yeah, web which assembly, were built traditionally in the old web. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, we're, we're moving then into WebO, even as PWAs. StreamYard we're using at the moment, like Teams. Yeah. Google used a lot of web technologies then. Yeah. And um, by these optimizations, we saw, of course, imp uh, improvements in browsers. Even Safari, which is the new Internet Explorer, is improving every year. So sometimes they just remove features again and you already implemented them in production, which is awful. So, but <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I just want to finish up the anecdote that the reason we have these frameworks, the reason we even have the term front-end development is because most of what we do is general purpose on front-end, which is very weird because that, that, that's not the case on back-end, right? So if I want to show a calendar, a calendar is extremely complex to make extremely yeah. complex there's a lot of moving parts in just a widget that has a calendar because it has a lot of different ways that you can show it a lot of it and don't get me started on date libraries and time zones and locality like the, and internationalization camilla is or, nodding camilla is nodding this is the main client of camilla yeah it's creating calendars because generally what you struggled with was you struggled with creating the general purpose tool but then either the markup or the colors or the CSS or the JavaScript was in some way coupled to the client site where you built it. So the next time you needed it, you had to recreate all of it and separate out what it was there and then move it here. And that was still complex, a, co a hugely complex amount of work because there was nothing out of the box that the browser might provide or that the operating system might provide. That was, so we, these frameworks were created initially not because the frameworks were so amazing, but because the, the frameworks enabled code sharing between development shops. So it was a standard that superseded the standards. The standards, so the what, w, what WG group, the what group and the HTML group were too slow in adopting new standards for JavaScript and the browser manufacturers. The browser, the big tech companies that control the browser space, they were too slow to adopt them and to enforce adoption. One mm -hmm. of the reasons we have such good, such good browser APIs on the rendering engines, which you might know now as V8 or Chromium or WebKit, mm -hmm. was because Apple initially pushed, first of all, to kill Flash, and second, to roll out a, a versioning system for iPhone where you were extremely encouraged to upgrade as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time when we said, okay, the mobile web space is going to match the desktop web space in markup. Cause usually you'd have different markup or even a different language. Those of you who remember WAP, we had different markup languages for different kinds of web. And that sort of started splitting the web apart as mobile adoption became, uh, grew more prominent. And the reason these things started coalescing together into the same platform space was so that developers could share common libraries more easily. Because we had that with jQuery, but then you had a problem of, well, I'm not using jQuery or I'm using jQuery 1.4 and the plugins for 1.6. Yeah. Or I'm using jQuery 2 and you're still on jQuery 1.2. All right. So it's, it, it, it created this space that allowed front-end developers who are not peers in the same company to share components, right? First, it was libraries where you got one part of it. You might have gotten the design, but not the functionality, mm -hmm. right? So I, I remember there were a lot of gallery plugins. Like, do you remember? There's a specific names for those gallery. I forgot them. Maybe 
write it in the comments. Someone will remember, I think. Yeah. How was it called? I don't know. Don't just go on. But they were everywhere. So you had everywhere those carousel. But I have another word in mind, but never mind. It was, it yeah, was, there no, was everywhere something you could download and implement. Yes. Calendars. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And, and there were but there was no versioning. There was no versioning back then. Exactly. It was the just some download link to, to implement it. Exactly. No yeah. version control. You didn't have NPM. So if it had dependencies, if it had dependencies, it came with all dependencies baked in, which means that you might have ended up with copies of mm -hmm. things like Moment and things like jQuery in your system. The library itself will come with jQuery, but you might already be using jQuery. Plus, there was no modularization back then. There was no common JS, no required JS, no, no. E ESMs, right? So it, it wasn't even possible to share the JavaScript space with multiple different versions of namespaced JavaScript libraries. So yeah, yeah, you're that's right. where the mess started. <laughs> so that, that is the mess that created then the demand for a higher level higher level of craftsmanship that the tools like Angular and React and now Vue and even Vercel and we can Astro, Tailwind that all of these provide, especially mm -hmm. on the overlap between JavaScript and CSS, JavaScript and DOM, markup and CSS, componentization, etc. So maybe another interesting part when you were developing in those area or those days or era was that when you was developing in one browser, then you, you mm -hmm. were thinking, oh, uh, I'm nearly close to finish, L like you do today with React or something like that. And then you test it in another browser, nothing happens. You just get an error message you don't know yet. You know, there was no st stack overflow like we know today. It was actually hard to find out what the real error was. You were mm -hmm. looking in forums and all this kind of stuff to find actually why your, your stuff is not working. So every, there was JScript, there was original JavaScript from Netscape. Then there were, let's say, a little bit, so Mozilla, for example, Firefox, or it was mm -hmm. Firebird in the beginning. I don't know, it was a different name. It wasn't Firefox. Mm -hmm. And you had, this was the one with the best standards at the moment. So it, mm -hmm. it was for very, for let's say the majority of people I knew back then, it was a development browser. So you developed in, in Firefox, mm -hmm. and then you just adopted it in the other browsers like Internet Explorer, Netscape, mm -hmm. and later then Safari. And yeah. uh, on some point you were then finished. So you always had this post-development fixes in other browsers and mm -hmm. uh, you were never sure if it's really working or not. So this was really, really annoying and you don't really, so sometimes you ha still have that today, but this is an edge case and a rarity. Back then it was part of your development cycle. And this yeah. is one of those parts I don't miss. I really don't miss those mm -hmm. things. Even if Firefox isn't my development browser anymore, is it like Firefox, the Mozilla developer, I, I heard them or heard him in a, in a podcast, he said there is an entirely new engine for Firefox coming out. Is that already the case? I haven't heard of that. I'm a Just Chrome user. I don't know. Yeah, okay. same. Good. Maybe some words towards our audience. Uh, we have several of you here today, which is great. So first of all, we see a lot of regulars there. Hello to everyone. Grant, Kaloyan, Max is there. Several people who I can't see the names Grant. because LinkedIn users, Armia. Uh, no, Armin, sorry. Sravan, hello, Sravan. New people. It's, it's great. So great to see you. So since we have many new faces here, which is great, we are audience driven, which means we will start in the after half an hour, which is quite now. Um, yes, to, um, very much now. We're very much pretty much now. We start to, <laughs> to, to show your comments and we will discuss about those comments. So it's not like we have prepared a lot. It's more like we know 
the headline and the subline and we are going into this discussion together with you so if you have anything to say about this topic any questions we will answer them we will go through all questions this is a promise and we won't leave until we have done that and uh, yeah. yeah this is a user-centric audience-centric session okay let's go with some of those i would say then yeah mohammed hey. sarush hello kaloyan so we have jquery gets no love at a time it was the de facto standard and all of the bigger websites had it uh -huh. looks better <laughs> between 2008 and 2013 i've had it i think it's just a bit of okay it was actually a good thing still i'm pretty happy i didn't work with jquery to be honest but yeah i can imagine it was a great thing at the point jquery still is the most popular framework on the web it is used on most websites in the, the, the same sure. way that WordPress is the most popular. Yeah, framework. WordPress is doing that to the internet. Yeah, because so WordPress and jQuery yeah. are still the most popular frameworks on the web, yeah, even yeah. though it's not five million considered... plugins still maintained with jQuery in it. And this is the yeah. reason why we have yeah. that. There's no new yeah. project. You start with jQuery and say, hey, this is for the next 10 years. No, you don't. Do yeah, that. but it, what's carrying this popularity is the platform and the plugin and the, and the module space. The package space not so much that it's actually a good it, it has to it has terrible developer experience so it, it's it's the most widely used for legacy reasons but it is not considered bleeding edge anymore especially in the tech space yeah it's considered now more as a sort of low code non-engineering solution i would say yeah it's, uh, unfortunately we don't have state of js 23 already we need to wait probably some weeks for that I hope yeah. it comes soon so we can have a session about that as well then to have yeah. the new trends. It, last year it was definitely still React and then I think it was uh, Svelte yeah. in interest but React still in usage. And there's a comment in chat, I'm just going to highlight it. And this is really like back then this was the real reason is that mm. the DOM API that JavaScript exposed from the browser was actually different in every browser, right? So if you ask the browser, hey, how large is this element? You got different values in different browsers. Even if the element was the same size, you would still get different values, right? Because browsers back then disagreed even on simple things like, will it return inner width or outer width? Or would it return it in pixels or in relative units or DPI sensitive units? Or will it return width padding or the, the entire box? Will it return yeah, anything if it's more. not a box and it's an inline box? Does the browser know what an inline box is? So there were there, there were these huge discrepancies and inconsistencies between the implementations of the browser engines that jQuery was really acting as a polyfill for, right? So jQuery basically wasn't jQuery as much as it was JavaScript. jQuery brought a unified JavaScript space for developers for the most popular browsers. And then the website. Yeah, but it wasn't the first one. It was just one. It's, it was like the Apple under those libraries. It just made yeah. it the best. So it became so most is, popular. The thing is that jQuery dominated the market because jQuery was the most popular one. And then all of the designers and implementers and basically any kind of developer or designer on the web designed for browsers that jQuery supported. So jQuery support dominated which browsers were going to be supported to the degree that even big companies like Microsoft had to lean in to whether jQuery supported IE5 or not or IE6 or not. 
back yes, then. That, that, that's, that's true. Yeah, of course, it, it does. So jQuery was influential. It's, it was simply like the way you were using it wasn't really the way you wanted to go as a developer. Yeah, that was for me no the case. There were alternatives, but then you lacked those. No, you had alternatives. Like Potter.js was exactly doing what you just said. The problem yes, was but they were they not were... interoperable. No, of course it was. So uh, you had just this dollar function, and then you could just get the viewport stuff and all this kind of. That was working. So we were working. Oh, yes, but only if you were not using jQuery. So my point is, if you had a plugin in Prototype and a plugin in jQuery, it was very hard to put both plugins at the same time. That was a problem. You need to decide yeah. for one of them. And in, exactly. in, in Prototype, it was, I, I, I can't remember the name. It was, there was a UI framework for that as well, but I forgot how it was. But, and this is what I meant. So jQuery, what jQuery was um, so popular because so many people built good stuff onto jQuery. So jQuery wasn't necessarily the best of its kind, but it was the most popular. And then there was so much stuff. You had so much widgets, this uh, jQuery UI framework, so many frameworks coming and you were ready to use. And when you started to use other things, you were basically mandatory to use jQuery because it was yeah. already a requirement you needed to install before you can actually run your site. So that was the actual thing. And of course, that was influential for the entire web and the development. Otherwise, without jQuery, we probably would would not be where we are at the moment. So some kudos there yeah. to not be too negative, sure. but let's go to the next one. jQuery UI, right? Exactly. So a bit of love for jQuery UI together with Google Gears, way ahead of its time, loved working with it. Mm -hmm. Just for context, yes. this was 15 years ago. So <laughs> like we're, we're that old, <laughs> but we can, we can fast forward a bit because now I, I see the re-emergence re, re, re of jQuery and the paradigm that jQuery represented. HTML is declarative and jQuery allowed you to manipulate DOM in an imperative way. And I'm seeing mm -hmm. the re-emergence of that with HTMX. So HTMX is basically jQuery. It's a JavaScript framework that is essentially jQuery for the modern web, which makes it a lot more streamlined, right? So HTMX, right? So I get this question a lot. Is it an extension to Vanilla.js? I don't know why people think that HTMX would be considered more vanilla JS than React. React mm -hmm. is also built in vanilla JS. I, I don't understand this take because if you're building something with HTMX, then it's very unlikely that you'll have zero JavaScript. So you'll still build them. So you, you'll still involve a JavaScript build process with Vite or Webpack or Vite preferably. That I, I think the question is more if HTMX is a framework or not, uh, a because framework. It's, a it's a framework versus versus vanilla actually. It's so a you vanilla go to the HTMX website, but, it says it's a JavaScript framework. But what I mean is, I, I think the topic is: Do you use just plain what you get in a browser, or do you use frameworks patterns to actually use it? Like, like for so, example, yeah, HTMX. So when the, when so I the, the selling point of HTMX is that it is a JavaScript framework where you, as the user, don't have to use JavaScript. But then I'm typing HTMX, and but I'm pretending it's not component. What, what, so the I'm question still is following what, the framework. But what do you want to build? So HTMX is definitely not for very complex uh, PWAs with a lot of complexity inside states and entities. Yeah. This is yeah. not made for that. So you don't have a good pattern yeah. for that. It is made for simple websites low code solutions, 
stuff like that, where you just say you only have, let's say, a list of users or a list of products inside a diff container and it's inside a flexbox, a flexbox environment. Then you can yes. just say in, into that, please load me the data and implement it there. And this is where HTMX shines, but HTMX is in, in no way a successor for modern frameworks like React is. Mm -hmm. So it is more for a very specific type of website. It feels for me a little bit like things like Hugo or static website generators, where you have this mm -hmm. simplicity and ease of use for simple websites and simple applications. But when we stick with complex web applications, like we're using at the moment here mm -hmm. to stream, you, you need something more complex where you have more control over the controller, the model, and the view. And this is what HTMX is not about. It, HTMX is to simplify that away to, this is actually, I never created an app with that. Yes, just, but then, but let's look at it from a business owner's perspective. What kind of developer will you hire to write HTMX? I never thought about it, to be honest. <laughs> a front-end developer who knows JavaScript, who then doesn't get to type, make, any JavaScript and they have to learn HTMX instead. Right. So it's weird to hire somebody who is very competent in JavaScript and then tell them, Oh, you never have to write JavaScript. That is my superpower. What do you mean? I don't have to write JavaScript. <laughs> I, I will have this much faster setup in React, or I can create a React component, <laughs> encapsulate it as a web component, and then mm. <laughs> pretend that it's a right HTMX application. But it's a story. Like it's just a fairy tale. Like it's still JavaScript. Web I, components I are still JavaScript. But it's it just that they masquerade as not needing the JavaScript to be managed, right? We're not talking about not using JavaScript. The question is, is the user who puts the component onto the web page, are they managing JavaScript? Are they managing the build process of it? Are they managing the deployment mm -hmm. space of it? Are they managing the obfuscation and minification space and the package splitting step of that JavaScript that lives inside the component? Mm -hmm. But let's make no mistake, the, the component won't work without JavaScript, even if it might be. Yeah, yeah, of course. There, 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 there is no life it's, without JavaScript. Uh, there is a lot of JavaScript happening. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. HTML is no programming languages. Please, young developers out there. <laughs> Markup, please. <laughs> yes. Even HTMX, so HTMX isn't a programming language. Uh, okay. Uh, do you want to read coming up? Yeah, sure. So I firmly believe that adhering to standards such as vanilla JavaScript and web components when developing core projects and libraries offers greater future proofing. Additionally, creating wrappers for popular trending libraries like React and Angular is an effective approach. Mm -hmm. What comes to my mind is Mark van Nerven. I don't know if you're in the <laughs> audience. If yes, please uh, leave, leave, a, leave a thumbs up or something like that. I don't know if he's in the audience, but uh, he's basically he posting nearly, he will. Uh, probably in, is, is posting nearly every day about the idea of returning a little bit to web standards and but his primary message and he was commenting that on the event page as well was that his primary intent is to bring it back into the minds of the developers that we are not react developers when we're using react we are still using the web uh, and there are, there is no, let's say, pure necessity to reuse React. There are things like mentioned in this one, the web components or custom elements, how they are technically called, and plain JavaScript instead of TypeScript. So uh, even if I prefer TypeScript, it's based on JavaScript. The subset is uh, JavaScript, and we all should know JavaScript at its core. So which, which means mm -hmm. that uh, when we 
taking a look at um, how people learn these days, uh, let's say juniors, boot camps especially. Camp grads often learn, come out and have the idea of I'm a full stack developer in React, which is, mm -hmm. it's, it's weird somehow. It's React is first of all, not, had nothing to do with full stack. And the second aspect is how can you be a React developer when you're using 90 to 95% of your time JavaScript? So what is React? Yeah. In, in, in opposite to React is just a way you use your JavaScript. And of course, it utilizes JSX or TSX files, which is actually not, not so much different to standard HTML. It's just a templating engine. But the majority of things in React itself, it's about understanding components and hooks and how the life cycle of those components work. And this is, this is React. This is learned quite easily. It's, it's hard to master, but it's easy, easy to learn. Um, but you use JavaScript, you use TypeScript. This is what you actually do. Just to, to as a context for this session, mm -hmm. in my personal opinion, people should call themselves type or JavaScript developer instead of React developer. And when, I, when we come to web standards, I think there, there's some very important aspect, which I wanted to mention, Mark, as well, is the future-proofing aspect. So yes, when you, so now the CTO comes out, no, I need to make business decisions. I, when I start a new project, I need to make sure that we have a runway of at least five years, better 10 years until we have a problem with our framework. For example, yeah. I just saw that the prototype JS website don't even have HTTPS support anymore. It's simply a website somewhere in the web. It's basically completely obsolete. Is it jQuery? jQuery is still maintained after so many years. Angular is still maintained after so many years. Exactly. And yeah, Angular JS is still maintained, I think. Yeah. And Angular, of course, is still. And the thing is, what I want to say by that is, yes, future proofing, but we don't need to think longer than 10 years. You really don't need to, you can't really think longer than 10 years, even in the longest business decision. And even if we take a look at React, I pretend, so five years ago, I was, I, I needed to make this decision six years ago. And um, we were starting with React with class-based back, then we moved to functional-based. And um, still today, it's one of, it was already, um, it, it was the rising star back then, and today it's still what it is supposed to be. And I'm pretty sure in the next five years to come, it's still a good thing to use. It will go nowhere, anywhere, um, anytime soon. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is, it is true that the closer you are at the actual standards of the browser of, of yeah, web core com um, functionalities, mm -hmm. it is easier for you. But the closer you come to those, the more you have to maintain yourself. This is what we should not forget. This is one of those strategic aspects as well. It's not only if it's future proof, it is the developer experience. How do you maintain it? Do you have mm -hmm. a good life cycle? Do you have good community support? If you, and, and I, I just speak about that because I was more than 15 years maintaining a framework until today with my colleagues, which does, we, we were even sure that we cannot hire people for that because it's so customized. It's so hard to understand because it's it was growing over time. There was several patterns, several people had different handwriting there. And this is what we need to know as well. React is, for example, is a pattern. Vue is a pattern. We mm -hmm. even Angular is a pattern we use. If we follow this pattern as its best practice is supposed to be by documentation, if you follow Dan Abramov in React, for example, then you follow a pattern which will be future-proof as well. They don't will shut down React from today to tomorrow. It's basically I don't think it will happen, to be honest. We have to separate out why we have these 
So the frameworks don't necessarily come with best practices, right? So it, it's very difficult to say, I will use React and it will solve all my problems. For longevity speaking, you were putting on the CTO hat. Let me put on my architect hat, right? So if I'm making a huge architectural decision, I want to understand, is this decision reversible? Right. So is there some level of optionality that it gives me? Does it allow me to make this decision or not make that decision or use this component or that component? React opens up a lot of optionality. It opens up a lot of spaces where you can say, oh, we can build it ourselves. And if you don't want to, we can maybe take a plugin from the marketplace. Like that is then a strategic decision, a, a bonus mm -hmm. that even though we might not take advantage of it immediately, we, we keep that door very much open. And it's actually a very huge productivity booster to rely on React components and secondary frameworks like Tailwind that the community is maintaining. Security maintaining, uh, interoperability maintaining, even on phones, even on all the browsers. You run into all kinds of issues with special APIs or fonts or directions of reading or accessibility. So there's a huge amount of benefit to it. Now, the real question is, you said 10 years, okay, React, yeah, okay, it's an NPM. It's going to be there. It's going to, this version of React will be there in 10 years as well. If nothing else, I can use the old version of React and be okay with it. The question is your code that you're writing, because you're, you're obviously not a con contributor to React. You're not a React developer. You're a developer that uses React, mm -hmm. right? If you're a developer that uses React, is what you're writing business code? Is it React code? Is it code that is a React component that only functions on one version of React, which is an older version than the current one? That's what you need to keep in mind. Will I need, will the framework at some point force me to update the framework I'm using? It will, will I, of course. Will I stop getting security updates at some point? Well, because for example, with jQuery, they won't force you. They maintain security updates for extremely old versions. So in that space, jQuery might be a better decision than React because React at some point will say, we made so much progress and we, the new version of React is so much better and so much faster that we introduced a few breaking changes and we recommend everybody migrate immediately. That is then a risk that you run into because you might not care about that, but you care, what you care mm -hmm. about is that you have created business code that is now a React component and you have no option to not make it a React component. So mm -hmm. you have been coupled to the framework. Then one but, of the biggest... This, this is normal. You, you always couple to something. So even if you write in jQuery, no, so you will coupling... utilize so much jQuery that you're coupled exactly, to jQuery exactly. as well. Now, now, the problem is, what is the surface area of that coupling? So if it's all of your UI code is coupled to React, I would say that's yeah. a problem. So only the lifecycle management mm -hmm. to the markup, only that should be coupled to the React. How you fetch data from an API that should not be coupled to React. How you transform the state and generate new data or send events to a socket, that should not be coupled to React. How you're managing navigation, ideally that should not be coupled to React. And Vue.js is now making a leap even in that. Sorry, not Vue, Next. Next is making a leap mm -hmm. even in that where it expands the responsibility space of React and makes it completely optional to actually bridge that gap of backend communication, mm -hmm. which is what we spoke about earlier. Yeah. Right, so really the, the big important uh, architectural decision that we need to make here is which part of our code do we want to expose and then 
cohesively, intentionally coupled to React, and which parts do we ex explicitly want to separate out from that, right? So the, the big productivity boost, if you're a large company, comes from decoupling from the framework as much as possible. It's yeah. to say, yes, it's a web, it's, it's front-end, but only the lifecycle bit and the markup bit will be coupled to React. Everything else, like the middleware space, what you would consider mm -hmm. business logic on the front-end, that should still be mostly business operational code that, has, that doesn't even know what version of React you're using. That ideally doesn't even import anything from React. And that is a very high standard that a lot of front-end shops don't make. Mm -hmm. And because they don't really understand front-end architecture to that degree, and then they slow down. They slow down, and then they basically adopt a sort of general-purpose speed because React was never really made to optimize for your business. React is a general-purpose framework, just like a database. I can have an accounting software. I can have racetrack progress <laughs> software. I can have auction software. I can have a computer game, and it will use SQL. SQL is a general-purpose tool. But mm -hmm. the point is you should be coupled to your configuration of that general purpose tool, not to the tool itself, right? People, backend developers have exactly the same problem with ORMs, where they use ORMs to communicate to the database, but then they can't decide, am I coupled to the database or the schema of the database or my ORM or the schema of my ORM? Because there's like a sort of split brain thing happening there. ORM like, is a very tightly coupled decision you do. So exactly. you, you tr you, this is, is a compromise. You might couple to two different things at the same time, right? So you might say the ORM is coupled to the database and the database is coupled to this database. This instance specifically is coupled to this schema, but I will have some sort of schizophrenic lapses of judgment of when I'm using the ORM and when I'm not using the ORM and when I'm using both of them at the same time and mm -hmm. when I'm bypassing the ORM and when I'm, right? These things happen on front end as well where you might say, oh, I'm using React, but oh, I will, <laughs> I will do some <laughs> vanilla JavaScript event things here because I don't know how to do it well in React without prop drilling or without some end work. weird endless loop because I forgot that second parameter in U-State and then it... This is what I meant by. with React is easy to learn and hard to master. It is easy yeah. to create your first application, but it most of the times when people, especially when they came from an imperative type of working, they basically mess up React pretty. I did that as well in the beginning, so I know about that. And understanding this infinite re-rendering stuff you have to do. So it's, it is, everything is asynchronous, everywhere are race conditions. And this is something you need to master very early on. You need to understand what is your model, your state? What is the server state? What is your client state? How do you combine that? How do you, how do you decouple that from the view? And where is your controller actually? So how do you implement hooks? There are so many things in React. So the idea of React is, is, is was the, let's say, the example for things like Vue, for things like Svelte. So when we talk about React, it is exemplary, of course, for, for all other of those things. But you need to really deep th uh, have deep thinking about um, how, to how to write a maintainable React application. This is what I say mm -hmm. to my team very often and to other teams as well. It is. Um, it is very hard to write a maintainable React application. React is very powerful, so it can help you speed up the development process X times. It really can. It can slow it down the same amount in minus, so in a negative way, if you do it wrong. And if you do it wrong, you build your legacy application while you're building it on Greenfield. And this is what we yeah. saw as well. So I see so many uh, teams out there refactoring 
React and Next applications while they're doing the first uh, while they're doing the first version. This is because they're, they're, the pattern was wrong. React is all about patterns. It is it, you, you describe your, your desired state and you need to have a good structure. If you don't have it, especially you, you said prop drilling, we have such a problem at the moment as well, where a prop is passed five times down, five functions down, and then you basically, it's, it, it is hard to describe what you feel when you see this and you know it's wrong because before I can go on, on and go on with working, I need to fix that stuff. This is actually a dysfunction. And we, are, we were used to it back then when we started with JavaScript to use props because there were no state management 20 years ago, no, no real state management. You had something like virtual classes and prototype where you had some instances where you could store stuff. But and you could have some kind of, uh, let's say, inset interval things where you ask for things and do things. But mm -hmm. in React, especially when you do those things, you really need to understand how state is working. How can how need how do I need to set up things in order, for example, that how does a component consume from an overarching state? So if you have no state library like recoil or even let's say Zustand is out there, there is. Yeah. So I actually, you touched on a really important yeah. distinction there in that the problem with state management wasn't so much that you couldn't just assign a variable somewhere and just keep it around. The problem was that it was very difficult to keep private because back then when these first JavaScript frameworks emerged, we only had var. We didn't have let or const in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And one of the, I don't know why, but it has legacy reasons and there's like ease of use reasons for why this happens. But what var does that let or const don't do is it does scope hoisting, right? So it mm -hmm. hoists, it pulls up, right? So you go five functions deep and you say var x, x, the scope of x will be hoisted up to the window level context, even mm -hmm. if you define it. Like, so regardless of how deep you define it, it will be moved all the way to the top. And Bubbling. Yeah. And it, you might accidentally shadow variables that have been already defined. Like you say var dollar, and it'll mm -hmm. replace accidentally some dollar. Like there are some exceptions, of course. You can, there are some patterns that you can use to stop hoisting. So you can interrupt the hoist. But then if you need something from the outside, now you need to manage the, the componentization order of how the, you're basically then writing an extremely complex general purpose framework to do some weird form of, dependency injection through the DOM, through different script tags, and then manage their life cycles. Plus, this is all synchronous code. And then now you need to introduce asynchronous code and JavaScript libraries that are getting included into the page on user action, not on load, right? That is really the complexity that's going on. And the best way to solve it is to define this mesh, this network mm -hmm. at build time, and then just give it to the user. And then it runs in a private scope. That's what uh, ECMAScript modules do. That's what Webpack primarily and Guzzle and similar tools and Babel, they transliterate everything to, to give you some kind of self-enclosing little container that connects itself to the DOM but doesn't expose its internal state. Right. So th this is just typical good craftsmanship practices from all of the other programming languages that were really difficult to adopt in JavaScript because of its mm. nature, because of its different ecosystem in every single browser. Which is, let's have it in more simpler words, which is, a, it's a good thing if you start with anything, maybe React or something else, to start with TypeScript and linting and get some solid rules yeah. 
for Linter. Yeah. For example, in React, the most famous one I knew back then were the Airbnb, uh, the, the yeah. Airbnb Linter setup. And uh, things like any, of course, are forbidden. And you are forbidden to use var, for example, as well. Mm -hmm. You needed to decide between const and let. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, the linter even said, no, this is uh, so you don't need to redefine. So use const. And if you reassign something, you can use let. So you had a very clear foundation. And this was a form of best practice or is a form of best practice. You should <clears throat> implement very soon or let's say not very soon, but very early on into your project because let's say JavaScript itself, which we've, which we were using for so many years, it was very loose in its idea. And as soon as you work in a loose state, so if you, if you are a very experienced person, you can do that. Even in a team, you can work quite good together. We, we've done a lot in, in our past, so it, it's working. So you need to debug a lot, but it's working. The thing is, it is unnecessary, especially if you have mixed teams with newer people in it, it makes more sense to move to something more structured like TypeScript is with a strong linter setup, which enforces you things like enforce with things like Husky or something like that to not so, be able to commit without having an entire check of your, if your setup, it will help you, especially if you remove any, you should so never I, use any. I, I have a sort of DHH take on this in that DHH is DHH, sorry, DHH is David Heinemeyer Hansen from ah, this guy. 37 Signals. Yeah. So he was causing a lot of drama recently because they were dropping TypeScript support and they were going back to JavaScript and GSDoc. I think Svelte. It's his own problem. I think Svelte did the same, I think, or one of the, one of the edge oriented uh, frameworks. The, the really important distinction with TypeScript and JavaScript, and we had a question about this. Yeah, we have point. several, so yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. stacking up at the moment and we should yeah. keep our right, promise. So the, uh, the, the point of TypeScript is not that it's a new language. The point of TypeScript is that it is better GS doc. Mm -hmm. So TypeScript is not a JavaScript replacement. TypeScript is a GS doc replacement. That gives you a little bit more declarative control of where the GS doc lives. Now, if you're writing JavaScript in such a way that you are building in a very declarative functional paradigm so that every function only has to know about its own state, its own GS doc, its own type, the mm -hmm. types of its inputs and the types of its return values. If you're writing such code such that every function every class every component is structured like that but every one of them not a few but a hundred percent of all of your code that you write if it's following that style then you don't need typescript the, the point with typescript was that you could declare a gs doc and then maybe not use it for two steps but then some parent will then need to sometimes with some level of optionality fetch something and then the child of that might have some type that now this function doesn't, according to law of Demeter, doesn't have direct friendliness with, which means it cannot naturally discover it. Yeah. So you'd have to repeat it. You'd have to hint the JS doc again at usage, not at declaration. And then you mm. would basically end up creating all of these like inline hints of, hey, what type is this? Mm. Uh, because it couldn't infer it. And that was the problem that TypeScript was solving if you were writing in a more declarative sort of 
badly organized object oriented way. Yeah, I don't know why we should do such a compromise when we use when we see languages like C sharp or Java, they are all typed and working very well, especially if, if you work in teams, yeah. uh, when people yeah. are, you know, creating consumable things uh, in, within your application, then you just have I mean, the auto completer and it's all good. Let's make let's no. make no mistake. JavaScript is typed. JavaScript does have types. It's just that there is no enforcement in on type it's loosely right? typed it, no one says there's no types but there is it's yeah, loosely so if, typed if, you, if i give you a number you can mm -hmm. use it as a string no problem so javascript allows you to do that so it will mm -hmm. mutate type on on like a the, the various jokes of undefined plus undefined <laughs> what is it is is nan equal nan is false i think right because nan doesn't mm -hmm. equal anything yeah um, yeah, yeah, there's several of these that are very <laughs> hardcore. Yeah. Right, right. But that's a sort of philosophical trick, right? That that is not actually practical so JavaScript. We, but there are we, some details like that in the language. We we have we have first hour, so maybe we should uh, go through the to this yeah. backlog. Yeah, I'm just going to show one that is related to TypeScript directly. Mm -hmm. So this is TypeScript does nothing for me, and I've been using it for eight plus years. I've written JS for much longer. JS doc is nice as a progressive enhancement for mm -hmm. your uh, of your code. Good naming conventions rule, but I always use TS because other people tend to need it. Mm -hmm. It is a good teamwork thing. So if you collaborate yeah. uh, within a team and you want to work together, TypeScript is a very natural way to work like that. And yes. uh, it, it is it, it, TypeScript even helps you in the build process to have some form of code quality, which it it on some um, it's a good foundation even if you don't have tests in place. TypeScript mm -hmm. already helps you in in combination with schema checks um, to have a good confidence already, even if you're thinking of reliable code and get some feedback before even pushing if your code will work is definitely better in TypeScript projects, which are heavily, that's all, let's say, with a good linter setup, mm. you, you get quite a good confidence you don't have with JavaScript. For, for example, if you have an API, this API gives you, let's say, user fields, those u 10 different user fields, and you have that in a good type version then you can be very sure if this, let's say some of those fields may be just a string, some of them numbers, some of them can be both, some of them can be null, some of them can be undefined or not even declared. And this is something, especially when you get complex applications with where no one really gets everything in, in, in context in, into their own mind, then it's really helpful to have something like TypeScript, especially when it comes to refactoring then it's very helpful. Just, you just run the linter, just run the build, and you can work through every component, and it basically works nearly every time. It's basically working every time. Yeah. Good. Let's continue with the questions, because we have quite a few that we don't even see. I think we have 12 that we can see, and I think we have about 15 more that we can't see in StreamYard. Let, let's so. start from the top. I would say just yeah. start from the top down. We have some open. Um, so there are a couple of questions regarding um, the Safari. browsers. So one, if Safari is usable for front-end developers, and the yeah. next one would be why not using Firefox anymore? Okay, so Safari is absolutely necessary when it comes to PWA de development. So when you develop, for example, so we, we did that a lot. We still did, do that a lot. And uh, you, you need to actually, this is the reason why I went back to um, Mac actually. So I was for many years from Mac to Windows and back than to Mac because it is very hard to develop for uh, Safari. If in Safari is for iOS as well, when you use the problem is WebKit is inside Chrome on 
iOS as well, which everyone should know when you do front-end development. So you don't really work in the real Chromium. You work in some form of that, but the underlying engine, especially when it comes to file, API and stuff like this, is WebKit, is the the Mac version, let's say, yeah, the WebKit version. And this is important to understand. So you need Safari in order to create web apps. You need a simulator like you have on the Mac to actually simulate this, to do that properly. And this feels a little bit again, like what I mentioned in the, when I was working with Firefox in the past, and then I tested it on every other device. It is basically mm -hmm. like that. So I'm not really developing. So I never did that much. This is just an experience uh, report now. I never developed straight in, um, in Safari, but I basically run my QA and bug fixing session before committing in mm -hmm. um, Safari browser and the simulators, which can be connected to the Safari um, console, and then you get the output in the console, and then you can actually work quite well in it. And this is something you should know. So um, it's maybe, uh, I don't like the console very much, so it's not as powerful as the Chromium one. So you can better use Edge, Chrome or Chromium or Brave for that to develop. Uh, this is just a perfect personal preference. And the second question to me was Firefox. I'm not using it because the Firefox engine itself is a little bit outdated. Chromium uh, basically su surpassed it, in my opinion, when I take a look at can you use, uh, can I use and stuff like this. Then Chromium does have the, the wider, let's say, the wider adoption these days. Mm -hmm especially when it comes to mobile, you will have significant quirky errors when you do PWA development in Firefox, because it sometimes is simply, especially in file APIs and those APIs, mm -hmm. when you want to, for, for example, take photos with the input, like you, you want to, well, you want to capture uh, the capture API in an input field in, in, in a browser. It is sometimes a bit quirky in Firefox versions. And this is, I think, the reason why I mentioned that the entire engine, the Gecko engine, I think it was, needs to be a needs to have a replacement. And they are working still on that. I hope it's already done. I need to take a look after the show if they have already uh, released also, something like that. There's also this case that at the end of the day, these are not standard browsers. And exactly. You know. We are not using standard open source browsers. We are using browsers that like large, dominant, monopolistic tech companies are creating. Mm -hmm. And these tech companies also create all of the products that we consume on the web. And mm -hmm. it just happens to be that these products work the best in the browsers that they are creating. Yeah. So when Microsoft was the dominant force for anything PC related, everything worked best in Internet Explorer. Firefox didn't even come close. Everything sucked in Firefox because it worked a little bit better. In could even delete data on C drive with Fire, Firefox wasn't possible, right? able to and, do that. Right? And if you look at if yeah. you look at the top websites, Google, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitch, Facebook, mm -hmm. Meta, WhatsApp, all of the in like enormous platforms, they are heavily Chrome dominated, and mm -hmm. they simply work a little bit worse. There's a little bit more jitter, a little bit more lag, a little bit more delay in Firefox. Less, less love in the development for those browsers. Right? Exactly. So the, so the, just the like user experience of YouTube is a little bit worse in Firefox than Chrome. right? And, and that's also a very important distinction here. Those mm -hmm. big tech companies, all of them have browsers. Meta has a browser. Meta is not even thinking about building a phone. Right. So, and Apple are also one of the biggest WebKit contributors. But the, that WebKit con contribution then also benefits Google to a very large degree. Right? So it's all coming back to 
what products dominate the internet and then which of those tech companies actually roll out their own browsers. And it just happens to be that Mozilla doesn't have any products other than their browser, which is just a general purpose tool that isn't good at anything. Yeah. So people say it isn't isn't the best at anything in any category, but it is a very good general purpose tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe to close up the question is I choose Chromium based browsers because as that, that was actually cemented in because when edge was using the Chromium engine with version, I don't know which, which version it was. Uh, and basically the older version was then deprecated as well, or even yeah. obsolete. That was then the time when you can say with for windows and uh, for Mac, you could use Chromium as, as, as a good basis to develop on. Um, and for most, let's say mobile browsers, most mobile devices, especially in the PWA area, Chromium is just a way to develop. So if it works in Chromium, you already covered a lot, then you need to make sure it works in Safari in WebKit, and then you have covered the other most part and then Mozilla. And when you take a look at Century, for example, tools like Century, where you can take a look about the usage factors. So I can't show it because of SLA and stuff like this and NDAs. You're just showing up. Nah, but then Mozilla is in reality a edge case scenario when it comes for, especially in the, let's say in the professional space, when you do B2B software, for example, B2B Mm -hmm. apps for professionals, they tend to have, most of them tend to have Apple products. And then you have something like Samsung and those flagship things on the market, Mm -hmm. which come close to Apple or even compete with Apple in in some spaces, those you find a lot. And especially on the, let's say, older generations, Windows users, they tend to still have Firefox around. And, but this is, this is not, let's say the younger generations, the young, it is what even brave browsers, I see, I have the feeling I see them more often. Yeah. I see them more often in Sentry than, than Firefox. Actually, I would not use Firefox as a primary development tool anymore. Besides the console is great, Uh, but Chrome does have a great console as well. So they really stepped up the game there. So let's get, get, get on with the next uh, comment. Next, please. Um, Ryan is saying, I'm using Vue.js. When do you think I would say, oh, let me go back to vanilla? Any real situation can you mention? I'm personally not a person who likes to go back to vanilla because I just came from there. (laughs) I'm pretty happy to not be there anymore. But this is the thing is we should have some context. So if you create a landing page, if you don't use something like Webflow, when you create a landing page for yourself yeah. or you create a blog for yourself, a static site generator like Hugo or Next.js um, with a static site, something like that, then it, you can use things which are, let's say, more close to the standards or easier to use. But when it becomes more, let's say, competitive, more like you have a real team, you have real de- timelines, you there is a business aspect in between, there are investors in between, mm-hmm. people who have expectations where you need to deliver. Um, I'm personally not a fan to use too much vanilla technology there. Um, I, I tend to use, let's say, the heaviest usage in the market like it is in React at the moment, um, just to keep up with the requirements and the context around you. So the expectations are so high. Sometimes you just want to be, pro, uh, let's say productive. And I think productive is a good keyword here. It is not about what I like as an engineer to work in. It is like, how can I provide as a CTO now, a, let's say a frame, a tech stack environment where people can work fast, 
reliably with a good maintenance and good support from community, good, let's say, good support, future-proofing support in the future and all this kind of stuff without, without explaining too much. So when I hire a React developer, let's say, mm -hmm. a developer with React experience who is a TypeScript developer, then, I, then it's easy to onboard such a person into a React environment. It is hard to, I mean, you've done things in vanilla, it's hard to find people and onboard them because your structure is a custom unique structure. There is no best practice or a pattern really the, for, the, for the, vanilla. There is no, that space is completely commoditized and mm -hmm. there's no benefit to doing it again by hand, right? I, I think as JavaScript evolved, I would even dare say that JavaScript, vanilla JavaScript has no use anymore on the browser. It is now, vanilla JavaScript has now become completely a backend dominated sort of Node.js or yeah. embedded. Like vanilla JavaScript is now for backends. Frontends require commoditized libraries and frameworks where yeah. these very old problems that keep recurring a billion times have been solved and you use a, a, a available off-the-shelf solution for things like calendars and galleries mm -hmm. and buttons and animations on your buttons and easing functions like there is zero benefit of doing it again by hand in 2024 and and especially we need to we need to be very specific about what we talk what we mean by vanilla javascript vanilla javascript doesn't mean that you're typing javascript vanilla javascript means that you're accessing the dom directly through the dom api that is exposed to the browser javascript mm -hmm. api not through some framework and that will generally end up needlessly with a bunch more code that you have zero benefit from. Plus, if you're inexperienced, it is much more likely that you'll create a mess because React, even though it's a bit more complex, is actually forcing you to manage state in a very healthy manner because mm -hmm. they enforce, very rigidly enforce, a very good architectural paradigm with the one-directional living world. Yeah. So you can create easy, you can start easy and say, hey, I don't have much overhead. I have a very small let's say uh, a small uh, a very small batch are really transferred to the browser so the browser does not have but this is the beginning after five years you have a shitload of stuff you transfer to the browser because every of those features inside the current frameworks and libraries you will rebuild them yourself you will reinvent the wheel again because re when you take a look at react and people say, oh, there's so much stuff you install in the browser before you actually run the code, which yes. is true, but it's not 80% unnecessary. This, this yes. is a misconception. It is not like it is unnecessary. So if you have the need to use React because you're creating a, let's say, a, a web app, like you do with a chat system inside there, with a shop system inside there, with everything. So a, a multi-context, multi-domain thing, then you really need those things then there is no way to go around them so it's okay to have them from day one and learn how to manage masses of code and design your application that you have a service worker who helps you caching things to get the mm -hmm. optimize early on because of course you have lower amount of code when you start with just typing your own classes but you will need to have all those features over time state management all this the server side synchronization stuff all those things you need to have yourself on some point as well and not even speaking about css now where you have this we'll have next week just for everyone to know next week we will talk about tailwind versus css this will be announced today or tomorrow by the way there's a comment about 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, so a good question. So why it's a right. virus invades every single HTML? Uh, good. So this will be a deal next the user. Next, but next uh, week. okay. I, I, I'm no, 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 forward no. to that one. Next week. We have too many questions. <laughs> but, but. No, no. Rito. <laughs> but, but SCSS. No. <laughs> So I think actually like we did answer this one, but I'll say it again. For a developer like me who has four years of experience, should I have experience in jQuery as well? I have some basic knowledge, but not too deep. Same goes for Vanilla.js. I am a React developer. It's always good to have knowledge in Vanilla.js as well, right? Yeah. The last, the letter sentence, yes. The first one yeah. with jQuery, you don't need to know how jQuery is. is so if, if you don't get a job where you maintain jQuery code, you don't need to yeah. use it. Uh, but what you need to know is always, and this is what Mark Van Erwin is always saying, you need to understand the fundamentals in web, which is JavaScript, which is ECMAScript, which is the HTML open web stack, which are all those things, all those standards. How do you structure your HTML right? How do you do accessibility? How do you properly use promises? How do you use async correctly? This is a misconception. Maybe this is a topic for actually for Camilla this time, because Camilla, you come from a bootcamp and in a bootcamp, in what order? So maybe you describe it out of your perspective, how you've learned it and how you've learned how it is in a real environment with real development, let's say. Correct. For me, I did have like vanilla JS learning in my bootcamp. I know this is not the case for everyone. Like I've heard of bootcamps where you do barely JS and then you go directly into React. And the thing about React, of course, it gives you this pattern that you can follow and you can start building things very quickly. And this is very nice. You get like a feedback of, okay, I'm doing things right. If you understand the pattern, if you follow everything, you will be able to do things right. The thing about this is there's a point that you cannot build anymore because you need these basics of vanilla JS, not necessarily like rendering type, but at least it's part of the business logic. You need to go back to this. Even for me, like I did learn some stuff. I did learn how to make functions and blah, blah, and everything. But like at the end of the day, now I feel like I'm coming back again to this part of, oh, wait, there's actually a better way of doing this. How can you improve this? And you will go back to this. Even though if you work in React or Vue or whatever you want to work, the basics are the basics. You need to learn them and you need to learn them well. If you actually want to have a good job and be very proficient at what you do, you need to go back to this. This is the basic of everything. So things of like state management in Vanilla.js, it's not necessary, just go with whatever framework you're using, but the basics have to be there. And even if you go back again and learn them again, it's fine. Just do that. That's my personal opinion. That's what I feel like I'm doing right now again. Mm-hmm. And, and there's also, there's no, so there's JavaScript and then there's browsers and framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then there's also the DOM. Like you also need to, DOM is a, the DOM is also an API. Yeah. The DOM API is an API. Yeah. We also need to learn that. Right? And the DOM API in every browser, in most browsers, is written in C++. Mm-hmm. Right? So the DOM API will expose to primitives that you have to learn their semantics. You have to understand, okay, what does set timeout mean? What, what are the guarantees of set timeout? Right? So a lot of people don't know that it, if you give set timeout a set timeout, then if you say set timeout zero, it will be zero. If you nest it once, twice, three times, it will be zero. If you nest it a fourth or a fifth time, it will no longer guarantee giving you a non-zero, a zero, close to zero set timeout yeah. interval. And it might actually minimize you to a least of, to a cap of four milliseconds. 
on the timeline, even if you wanted it to be immediate. That's why things like next immediate uh, exist. And then there are things like how promises work and how the, in what order they resolve. Those are still, yeah. that, that's not DOM API related, but those are important because nothing in the DOM API uses promises by default, then, which might help you learn callback hell a little bit. But then you also need to learn things like, okay, what kind of DOM manipulations trigger a repaint? What kind of DOM manipulations trigger reflow? So the restructuring, mm -hmm. or what kind of DOM manipulations trigger layouting? Is there a way that is more layout friendly? Is there a way that is more repaint friendly? Because at the end of the day, when you will be doing some kind of DOM manipulation at some point in a loop, mm -hmm. and in some point accidentally in a loop, and you might just ditch the browser's FPS. The browser yeah. has For FPS, it has frames per second. And if you abuse and if you don't understand the fundamentals, you will create UIs that run at a very low FPS. And For example, sometimes works like that. And it's terrible. Whenever LinkedIn does something in the background and my FPS drops on LinkedIn, I'm like, ah, I want to refresh and it doesn't they, work. They close it. They, reopen. they updated the, uh, in LinkedIn, they updated the section for the, for the chats. So you, you need to play, press the load button. Uh, because otherwise, when you have over 50 chats, basically your browser breaks and they have mitigated by pressing yeah. buttons so you don't have an endless scroll. But I wanted to add is React developers know that by dangerously set in a HTML. Was it like that? Yes. So uh, you have um, th uh, three times coming to my mind how to add new HTML into a browser, into a DOM element, which is in a text, in a HTML. And which is, so inner text is not really for HTML, but inner HTML, and you can create an element and basically append it uh, to, to, to an uh, object. So those are fundamentally different ways of doing things. And as, as Dennis said, especially we, we have did that in the past. So we've basically created a framework, which was creating elements after the DOM was already loaded. So it was not coming with a, let's say with a markup already. And there was a significant difference when you had a lot of those for especially form uh, fields because it's a different it's a thing if you just have a diff element with a text inside that this is always fast but if you have a complex input element with a lot of apis and you have hundreds of them uh, you you switch them if you switch to another tab and suddenly you, you can basically break a browser especially if you have a lot of observers and all this kind of stuff running onto that so you need to be careful and a good thing with uh, for example if the api when you want to create an element and you can already attach for example other things you can bind exactly yeah. you can bind other objects yeah. and, and functions um which you cannot do with with set inner Exactly, with, with a set image HTML, which is the reason why the React developers called that actually dangerously set inner HTML. So you should avoid yeah. this to use this, actually. Okay. Good. Next question. Okay. Next question. This is a great topic, yes. but maybe a little bit more on in two weeks or three weeks. <laughs> oh, so, from weeks Robert, after. we did a web app development with vanilla JS, ESX, lit HTML, SCSS roll up for an enterprise B2B customer, which worked pretty good. This was two years ago, and I'm wondering why this web standard approach did not become more popular. The mm -hmm. customer was pretty happy because it's simplistic and there are no big migrations necessary. So lit, lit is something Mark is talking about a lot. Yeah. There's lit PWA as well. Um, yeah, I haven't used it much. I don't know the 100%. The so I don't have market research about this. But I, I think it has something to do with the stuff we already discussed. And this is um, that we actually 
um, have with React some ecosystem. So it's all about ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So we need to take, a, so um, when we see that on an operational level, on the developer or engineer's point of view, it, it's strange that people use React instead of things who might might have a better concept just on the operational level. But if you see the entire vertical, the tactical level, the operational level, which is the, uh, the strategic level, which is the business level as well, with the constraints to find new developers, to have maintained, to have an ecosystem where you can compose applications and all this kind of stuff. For, for example, if you go on NPM, nearly every package you find on npm does have uh, a very good maintained version for react of it and you, mm -hmm. you don't have that for others and uh, you have a sheer overhead in a real production if you need to implement everything yourself you need to maintain every implementation yourself don't forget that it is not about building something it's about the entire life cycle in the next five to ten years and if you build every component yourself or integrate libraries yourself those integrations needs to be maintained of course those npm packages can lose maintainers as well that's possible that you are you never out of risk but this is what I see the last six years in React is this great ecosystem and we were never, we never came into a situation where we really shivered. This is, it was always okay. Every, let's say, the worst thing was that we actually needed to migrate. I don't know which one it was, but the React version itself or Next, it was React and Next at the same time. I think it was 12. Yep. Next 12, where we needed to have React 18 and Next 12, I think it was. And that was, it took us two days. Just two days. There's nothing in, in, in the timeline of 18 months of development. And if, you, if I know that we have still vanilla JS stuff, which is like it was on day one, which can be good, but no one is really touching it because we don't have time to do that. And we also need to, there's another question, a fresh one that came up. Like I work with PHP and Node.js. I want to work with React.js mm -hmm. on a project. The learning process is there any way to get project level experience in React.js since my current project base does not have React.js. React.dev, the official documentation, yeah. is one of the highest quality developer mm -hmm. experience documentations in the world for any JavaScript framework. It is yeah. written to a very high quality level. Even better than a lot of people in the C sharp back when Microsoft was written as micro, as M dollar, as micro. And people were uh, criticizing Microsoft for gating everything behind expensive licensed hardware. You couldn't build C-sharp products without running it in IIS. You couldn't run it in Nginx back then. So th there was no open source version of it. But still, developers praised the, what was it called? The .NET compendium of knowledge. Like the MSDN, I believe it was called. Right. So the Microsoft developer network, like those were the highest level quality documentation templates and documentation paradigms at the time. And nowadays that has been spreading out. So a lot of open source projects get that enterprise level style and tonality to their documentation. And right now React is that Microsoft is maintaining TypeScript to that level, which is huge. You take Microsoft, which already has a history of writing very good documentation, and then you add to it React which also runs in TypeScript from Microsoft. And now you have React.dev, which is one of the highest levels of quality of written prose about how to learn React. And you're set up to win. It's free. It's open source. It's accessible to you. 
it's written in, it's translated to many languages, even if you're not a native English speaker, by all means, your workplace doesn't use React.js, go, React, go to react.dev, problem solved. Now, mm -hmm. if you're asking me the same question for Vue or Svelte, I wouldn't have such a good answer for you. Because mm -hmm. my answer is only relevant for React because it is the most dominant framework in the industry right now. Uh, this it is dominated by the industries that just accidentally happened to also write the best tutorials and documentation in the, in the this, enterprise this, space. This answered even the, the comment before what you just said as well. Um, so this ecosystem was just, it's just huge in React. Yeah. And it's yeah. a business factor. It's a business decision to use yeah. React. It's not an engineering decision. It is not the best way to program things. It is not. There are viewers as is, is, is good as me, even vanilla can be as good as it's all JavaScript, but it's about yeah. how you can handle business with that. It's all about business. If your business is not working, you do, you need to lay off people. And this is, this should be an interest for a developer as well. I would uh, quickly, because we're talking a lot about how to do uh, those React things, I wanted to advertise a little bit, just uh, 30 seconds, where I'm offering something for you four times, actually. It is a, a small dojo thing we want to do with for React people. So uh, especially juniors or pre-junior levels like bootcamp are invited pro bono to uh, join a small dojo where we're going through how what actually Camilla did from bootcamp to junior plus this kind of journey what the, the missing gap there is there's a huge leap in between uh, those two states so what you learn in school actually and how to actually apply it when you don't know when you don't know javascript before you actually went to bootcamp and this is so we in the past most developers in the past in my when i started were already programmers when they got into business. And this is different today. And this is the reason why I want to try something out. So you are invited to, to apply for that. I will quickly show a link and you can take a look at it. And I wanted to test something out with this one here. It's a snackle position. <laughs> this is a junior developer. So if you look like that, and then you can take your phone or just take the link in the comments. And we will just test it out. So it's basically a pilot project. Uh, maybe Dennis is there as well. I don't know. So we'll take a look. But this is primarily uh, Camilla will be there as well. And we will talk in about those things. Feel free to take a look if this is something for you, if you're interested in something like that. And pass me a DM if you like that. Now, back to the comments. Thank you for your time. <laughs> We have a comment from Max. Uh, React is a great library, to be honest, that solves many problems and makes development a lot faster and easier rather than pure JS. But it has created new problems that some frameworks came after solving, like server-side rendering, hydration, device rendering power, and CD mm -hmm. and caching. And yet it is an ongoing development. Okay, uh, I, I got the first sentence wrong. Max is basically saying that React is a great library which solve those things. Um, yeah. Indeed, especially together with Next.js. I remember Marcel Hegemann, who is a CTO now, but he's a front-end lead, and he was he's, telling this. He's here with us. Yeah. Ah, is he? Okay, hello, hello, yeah. Marcel. And he said that as well, that then basically React and Next.js are our future proof. They are the thing for 2024 to start a new project because of those things. I remember like mm -hmm. that. And uh, the, Max is totally right. There are so many things. So uh, this is what I wanted to say beforehand as well. So when you, um, so I had many junior developers asking me on LinkedIn and private messages the following. So I have learned JavaScript. I even have learned TypeScript. Mm -hmm. What language should I learn now? 
And I ask, okay, do you know what a service worker is? What index DB is? Do you know yeah. the differences in caching? Do you know what session storage is? Do you know what local storage is? Which one of them is asynchronous or synchronous? What is push notification? How can you actually handle that? What do you need for that? What is the Webpacker? What are those things? Every, what, what is the difference between modules and Webpacker? Those things, do you know that? And, and you know what? And this is no go going out to everyone in the audience. You know what? Most of the people don't know anything of those things. And they ask already, which language shall I know next? None. It's not about the language. It's about to be able to be a front-end developer. Just by knowing the very basics of JavaScript and React doesn't make you a front-end developer yet. Sorry to say that. You are, I wouldn't hire you to work in my company to work on those things. When you say you would be a already, not, I don't know me junior levels, intermediate level, intermediate front-end level. You are that when you know all the APIs in your environment, which are necessary to create web applications. So if you're able to create a landing page, great, this is junior stuff. If you're, of course, there is accessibility and CSEO, you need to learn those things. But when it comes to complex web applications with complex API, complex state, complex design principles you need to apply in order to get that right, in, in, in order to work and collaborate with teams, in order to do continuous delivery on those things, then, and then you are a good person. Those things you need to learn. It is not a next language you need to learn. This is where people then actually hiring you for positions when you know those things. This is what makes you a developer who's able to work in a team um, in a good way. And it's also like on your career path, if you're a junior, there is no future for you if the way you learn is you open the manual and you try to learn everything there is simply too much mm -hmm. right so the best way to learn is find a problem the problem isn't that you don't know how to code but like an actual problem something that you can build for and if you can't build anything join a company as an intern or as a no, join a bootcamp join a bootcamp for which you don't have knowledge for that's the point you get the knowledge there because then how you can apply your knowledge is oh i need to build something i don't know how it works and then that one thing that you don't know how it works you open the manual for that and then you learn how it works and then you build something and then you learn how it works because you built something not because you read the manual the manual helped you just enough to build it but by building it and seeing it operate and fail and break and then mm -hmm. have to debug it that's how you learn it you will never learn anything just by reading the manual yeah and you, you're not learn anything by copy pasting code from ChatGPT. So that's also another form of manual, right? So ChatGPT will just give you manuals upon manuals that are catered to your level of knowledge. So there, there is no future for you unless you're actually building something that is at least used by one user. So that can be you as well, but you have to use it in the context of I have, a, I have an actual problem and the problem isn't that I like to code and I'm not coding anything right now. Yeah. If you want that, install BitBurner and start typing JavaScript. Also a small plug from my end, I am building a small course for which I would like to have some maybe pro bono participants. I am building an object-oriented refactoring and tidying an architecture course for just TypeScript and JavaScript by using a game called BitBurner. It's an open source game that you play by automating it with TypeScript. So if you want one-on-one -on -one coaching from me or team-based coaching from me, just connect with me on LinkedIn. I also have a very more life of coaching oriented mentoring going on a mentor cruise. If that's more your style, where you want, just want to talk to me once per, once per week, 
But for, with teams, I usually, what I work with is getting them into a space where they just learn their craft. They're very high detail, like all those little details, refactoring, organizing things, naming things, designing small and large. So architectural business level decisions, so more domain driven design oriented, organizing teams or the small, like organizing functions, organizing coupling, organizing finescence. And I'm putting together a course where I need a little bit more feedback about how to make it fun for you to learn these things without building some fake projects. Because there are a lot of games out there, but you can have fun coding, right? And it, it doesn't feel like a weird fake project. Um, uh, I, I, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. So that, that's where I'm headed. I don't have a clear path on that yet, but the, the passion is high on it right now. And I'm investing a lot right now into writing a sort of path of learning for somebody by exploring it myself and just writing code that I have, I have organic natural problems, just styling my code with this kind of API. And as I'm solving it, I can see that it will be interesting to you to just observe it. We did a little bit of test run of it last week on the Thursday stream. So if you'd be interested in learning more about that, just book me a DM, follow me on the Substack, or if you want, if you already know, you want a little bit of one-on-one -on -one coaching as a taster, you can uh, connect with me on mental groups. Mm -hmm. I really would recommend this. As you see, he's knowing a lot. This is the reason why we stream together. One of, one of the few people you can talk uh, about everything regarding tech and software engineering and life coaching about. So uh, very recommendable to take a look closer at. He, he's a nice person, looking good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I did, uh, just... I did. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to, to add up um, a little bit like you said, or we said, that, that we need to learn multiple things. You read a lot about site projects. It's not about reading just documentation. Some, from time to time, you should read documentation, but this is how you start. The very first day, you read the documentation, and then you need to practice. What I do often, even if I don't have the business application right now, where I can practice, for example, those things I just mentioned, service worker, mm -hmm. camera capture API, index DB, push notifications. What I've done, for example, I've done a, a, a site project. And in this site project, it incorporates a complex map, map with Mapbox. It incorporates geolocation. It incorporates camera captures with WTC and with Capture API. And IndexDB file system API, which is the brand new API. Brand new, it's brand new in, in, in Safari, but it's available now. So you have a real file system, which is mm -hmm. even if you delete the, the website of the yeah. service worker, it's still there in the real device, which is interesting as well. All those if things. You use if you use Stack Blitz, the new mm -hmm. VS Code, the new GitHub Code Editor in the browser, that's how they work. They actually create a real file system for you. Mm -hmm. And then they actually fake a Node.js inside your browser so you can actually code as if you had an IDE somewhere remotely, but it actually lives in your browser and just synchronizes backups to the server. And, and those kind of things are very interesting to have done because you learn a lot because what you need to do to learn as an engineer is actually to ask yourself the question, why is this not working? And then you need to ask the question, why is this working? And then you come to the conclusion, ah, I understood. I understand. Yeah. And this is the way to go. This is how you actually learn. And you can only do that by doing, by practicing, by failing, succeeding. This is how you do. This is still the same when I'm sitting there as an engineer in the night and try to feel like why, why this is not working. And then I'm, I'm surprised that it is working. And then I'm happy. This is how I can go to bed then. But yes, okay, let's go to back to comments then. Mardi has a very good question. I think I would feel very bad for not addressing that question. I think you should address all questions, right? 
Yeah. Can you highlight that one? I don't know which one you're. It's already highlighted. To. It's the last one. It's this one. Okay, go for you. Uh, if you're tasked with designing a comprehensive component set for a company with many teams and frameworks, would you opt for a core product in Vanilla.js, including TypeScript, but without frameworks, or web components, and then write wrappers for React, Vue, Angular, etc.? Or would you choose a different approach? Complex question, to be honest. Very complex question. Because it is, I, I like this question. I, I think when we, when we get some experts here on stage, you will have different answers and different opinions about that. It all comes down to context, requirements, NFRs, and you need to determine them in detail before you make this decision. I had that in several other teams where we were consultants as well, where we talked about using React. So they were considering React. They wanted to have it explained. They were already on web components and they stayed with web components. And the reason being for that was uh, they said, okay, uh, we have more control over what we do. It is easier for us. It's working for us. Our developer are working like that. They were basically happy with that path. And they were then basically shipping those web components to their clients and they could implement that again into their browsers. Web components are actually made for that. So as soon as you have, so this is one of those use cases where I can personally uh, imagine to not use React. Uh, you can put React into a web component, but this is a little bit of overkill, but Point maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah, the other way around. Um, so, so React is more for the app not... layer, not for the component layer, right? So web components plus React is a very good solution to dynamic asynchronous mounting where you are mounting something that comes from the server, mm -hmm. right? So you don't know in what shape that thing will be and what state it will need. And it's coming from the server. And the moment it hits your, for example, you have a checkout page and has Stripe integration. Then when you click pay, it replaces itself without opening an iframe or new window with mm -hmm. the one with the token authentication of your bank, right? So it's custom code that lives inside your browser. It will have mm -hmm. OTP. It, like in a very secure way, it, have, it will have OTP as a component. That's very hard to do. And that's very hard to do because it requires your application and Stripe and all of those thousands of banks that Stripe supports to all use the same version of React. That's very hard. And then you have one of them that uses Svelte and then it's, ah! <laughs> right? And then it's, it just doesn't go anywhere. Now, web components are a solution to that, but only in this direction. You're mm -hmm. using React and you will put some markup into the space and that markup will happen to contain, contain a web component that is self-contained and then it will be alive. Now, you won't be able to, it might have a dropdown of some kind. You won't be able to extract state from that for React, but the dropdown will function. That's the, as an example, right? Mm -hmm. But it might just be a video player, right? That, but this question, let's be honest, this question is an entire episode. This yes. is, uh, uh, so I, I just want to, I just want to address the, like the first part, because I do encounter. So one of my most intense ways of coaching is coaching an entire team, usually a leader, a CTO or a VP, and then I'm coaching them and their immediate reports, like a, a triangle somewhere along the vertical. And this happens a lot. And usually I recommend addressing this question is because Mali, you've already set yourself up as a, let's say ivory tower architect, right? So you're assuming that this decision has to be made above these teams. And I would, I, I, that, that would be the first thing that I would challenge, right? So you, you mentioned there are many teams and frameworks. So I would put this question individually in private, not on the same meeting, 
to each of those teams and each of those framework owners individually and see, do they all come up with the same answer? If yes, problem solved. Mm -hmm. But it's very likely that each team, for reasons of their own that are really important to them, will choose different approaches and even different frameworks for the same approach. Right? So if that's the case, so it's, if it's very heterogeneous, then you need to ask yourself the question of, do I want a federated UI? Do I want some kind of micro front ends going on where I have one page that represents an application and this part of the UI is coming from that team and this part of the UI is coming from that team and these two things have to be deployed and operated independently and it has to play together. So Spotify is an example of having that kind of federated UI, which is why your sidebar cannot have pop-ups over your main window because it is being operated by two different teams that are completely standalone. Right? It's the same reason why you have certain songs on Spotify, which don't work in certain countries, but the UIs don't update on them. Right, So the, the UI where you can select to play it doesn't know that you can't play it in your country because that is being handled by a different UI component. Right, So you might be able to add it and play it, but then on the list it's grayed out because the list knows about where you're from and what country you're from, but the mini player doesn't. Right, So there are like these little details that then pop up as a consequence of federating UI like this. And then comes the second question. If the UI is, sorry, <laughs> cable help. If the UI is fed, is the API also federated? Does the federation of the backend API match the federation schema of the front end? If yes, you can use GraphQL. If not, you might have a much more complex problem that you need to solve. Maybe it's not even the same product. Maybe you're just a service provider for code. For example, you might be a Salesforce B2B shop. So all of your products are Salesforce something, Salesforce components, but none of your clients is using all of them at the same time. It just might be that you're just using some clients, 80% of our clients use Salesforce, and then 40% of our clients with some overlap with the Salesforce clients use some other large big commerce. Then some of them might be on Google's big data, BigQuery, right? So it's, it depends. Like you might have some Power BI users in there, and then you might have some overlaps between them. And then you might want some, okay, for this user, I want those two systems to operate at the same time on the same page. So if you're in that kind of space, I would try to say, empower each team to figure it out on their own. And there where they naturally then have organic overlaps, create platform teams that connect them together and simplify mm -hmm. their work. So you don't have to recreate the same tools twice in the same company. That is mm -hmm. how I would approach this. Now, the problem is, you going there and asking all of them for this means that you need to interrupt all of them now and really create a huge initiative where all of them take it seriously to the same level, which is also a huge ask because maybe only your most experienced people and those that lead staff engineering and those that leave chapters or guilds or architecture programs, maybe only those developers can really help with this initiative and they are not um, um, homogeneously distributed across all of your teams, they might just be hyper-focused on the biggest revenue streams in your company, which means that most, most teams that are a minority in that regard will require some kind of mandated architecture or a little bit more documentation or asynchronous way of working as you're doing this initiative. But mm -hmm. at the very end, to wrap it all up, whether you're going to use Web Components or React or Vue or Angular has nothing to do with the complexity of what you're facing. 
Yeah. This is completely a business topology problem and you need to address it like a business problem. As you're solving this problem, if React goes out of business, if TypeScript gets abandoned, if Vue gets abandoned, if Angular gets abandoned, you will still have this problem. So this is for you a constant initiative that will outlive all of these frameworks. You need to figure out why this is important for your business to be solving constantly. Maybe it's not profitable for you to be solving. Mm. In that case, maybe React plus GraphQL might be the best solution for you. Maybe this is such a problem that only you can solve, that only your business can solve, in which case, you might actually benefit not from selling the products, but actually to making the platform that you'll create available to other B2B companies, because this is, might be such a complex problem. FinTech has this. FinTech has this whole nature of problems of running ledgers, of connecting with crypto, of connecting with KYC providers, connecting with um, government uh, regulations or like, like translation levels of documentation uh, quality. And there are platform providers that are just B2B platform providers for FinTech, right? Maybe you're in that space. Good. Great question. We have frameworks and libraries are, and the ecosystem around them offer tailored solutions which would improve the developer experience to a greater extent. So certain extent, web and JavaScript APIs could replace the third-party solutions. For example, such API can be used instead of Axios. If we go back to Vanilla.js, how would one manage state in the app? Modern web apps <laughs> have tons of state. In the end, will the copies will end up with loads of libraries to handle specific problems? Yeah, that's actually a good question. So let's say state management wasn't invented with things like React. It was one of the first major things was, for example, Redux, but I think there was others before as, as well, but Redux was like the React under the state management. It is a little bit, it is not outdated. Many people still use it, but personally, I don't prefer to use it. You can, the framework wasn't. Yeah, yeah, but re Redux, and I thought that myself as well is in the beginning that it is part of react, but it isn't actually, it is just some state management library you can use for basically everything. Mm -hmm. So you can push inside the state inside. We even did that in the very beginning manually to push and manipulate, manipulate a state. So you could basically combine fetch together with Redux or even use Redux thunk, which is exactly doing that for you. It is, it is something like 10 stack or react query where you then have a state you can use locally as well, which is then not, it must not be React in, in some kind of data binding way, but it can be something like in an imperative way. So you have a callback and then you do something with a callback, you update a DOM element or something like that. So you the can problem, do that as well. The problem with Redux was that this whole, what was it? Map provider, map state, the map prop to state, that one function that just kept like it just spread across your entire code base like a virus. Like map, I think it was map state, the map prop to state, I think it was. Uh, and then the other one was various different forms of dispatchers and actions and reducers and stores. Uh, it became a framework, right? So the approach of unidirectional data handling is very good. It's also the recommended way of building complex applications. If you follow things like domain driven design, event modeling, even TDD, you know, it, it, it might be very recommended to not do state management and querying and the and destructive behavior at the same time that you have them separate um eve's go 11 has a very good uh, series on these called the the famous nine uh i think it's called 
Um, basically, he has a, a very good setup about the Fantastic Nine, how you can basically separate out, is this state change? Is this a projection? Is this an event change? Is this a delegation? Is this a command? Does it have side effects? Am I just recording what the side effect was? Am I reacting to it? Am I doing a to-do list and I'm deciding whether the side effect, am I a decider, aggregator? Right? So it has all of these like little primitives of the pattern where Redux was basically just the gluing together of four of these primitives. And then they force you to use all four of these primitives, even when you need only two, right? Even when I need only delegation, I have to go through all four steps and mm -hmm. that created a lot of wasteful code. So the approach was sound. The philo philosophy behind it is very sound. But the implementation was terrible because it required a lot of framework opinionated glue code inside your code. And you basically became coupled with some weird, unimportant details about how Redux worked. Plus, it did what seemed, what should have been asynchronous CQRS as a synchronous lifecycle without promises. And that was one of the biggest problems with Redux is that the moment you get a fetch API call, mm -hmm. you then had to figure out, okay, how am I going to handle the, how, how am I going to handle the state change of I'm fetching, I'm not done, I'm in progress. There's a progress update. There's an issue. I can continue. I can abort. I can recover. And here's my data. And it's off what I expect. That whole state manager, that was the hard part about Redux because it brought all of this locality to the state way too far away from the UI that needed it and your entire other application and the store didn't need it. And you and all of your reducers then got unnecessarily re-triggered and it basically created this Redux hacking initiative where people would then said, okay, you're using Redux, but you're using it wrong and you need to use this library to optimize Redux. And then that just created a whole bunch of hell where people just abandoned it when I think when React query came in, I think everybody just went, ah, okay, finally, I cannot use Redux anymore. But it was a solution to a problem, which was basically a mimicking an improvement over ng, NG store and NGRX store. From, right? So it was the reactive pattern about having stores, having service locators, then be dependency injected from the way Angular worked in a React, in a React sort of fashion in a more functional paradigm without the classes, without the service locator. But again, enterprise level, extremely complex and good intentions, bad execution, right? It opened an appetite for the market. A lot of people got burned, but it's time for something better. It's time for the next comment. We have three more deep detailed comments. Let's go. So, so for the first one, yeah. So what's worse, to be coupled to a framework, this coupling might include UI, routing, even some security, AOP, directives, whatsoever. That's but fun. everyone on that team, <laughs> Angular or React using developer, will be coupled to the same thing and will know that tool. Or mm -hmm. can you go the web components of an JS way and be coupled to any other third-party tools, a lot of, and with, with each of them having their own life cycle, mm -hmm. their own pace version of upgrades and adding a lot of variations and a lot of OCCAS. No, okay. So I, I think it's just- Occasionally. Yeah. Oh. This is, this is not the I entire thing. Yeah, you gotta go. I, I can open it up and have it open. Uh, um, and occasionally, and, and a lot of occasions to do and fix eventual breaking changes. Java once was the main enterprise software development language, but when it came to UI, they had at least five to six standards to do UI in Java. I'm just going to hide the comments now. Thank you, Balash. Yeah. 
I would say these two things, these two questions, these two options are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would say, yes, it's a huge problem. If your react shop is writing code that is heavily coupled to react, you can use react in such a way that you're not heavily coupled with react. That would be my first recommendation. Like th th that is the first thing you can do that requires some level of architectural discipline that will improve everybody's confidence. It will make testing easier. It will make changes easier. Your code will be easier to change which is the most mm -hmm. important part for well-being on your team. And then there's the second part, the web components part. The web components part doesn't mean that no frameworks are being used. Web components just mean that you don't know what frameworks are being used. Mm -hmm. So if you're using web components, those web components might be using React internally inside the web component, mm -hmm. but you don't know that. The web component will work by you just putting the markup inside your page, but it might still use React or Angular or Vanilla.js or HTMX. So the, using web components doesn't mean that you're following some more sort of vanilla standard. There is no standard. It's, it's about packability right. and uh, shippability and isolation. Exactly. And it's about lifecycle isolation, right? So the question is, do you want your root application to have to control and know about every single component that will exist in your UI? Mm -hmm. That is the main question, architecturally speaking, right? So do you want to have a monolith centralized UI or do you want to have a federated one? If you want to have a federated one, it's a price to pay, but mm -hmm. then you can use web components and inside web components, you can then use Vue.js. So you might then say, I will have a main React router in Next. That will be our middleware. And then that will talk to an API. That will be our backend, right? So Next.js will have its own backend for the middleware. And then you'll have many different microservice APIs. It'll be federated through some federator, some router, some load balancer, some API gateway. That'll then do SSL termination and route and load balancing uh, and authentication and cookies and sticky sessions for WebSockets. And then as they come into the UI, you might say, oh, this is a web component. This is our React Native thing because it requires login on the iPhone. And then inside of that, there's like little web components and some of them are React and a few of them are Vue or something else or Native. That's okay. That's an extremely complex setup that I wouldn't recommend unless you're solving some very concrete business problem by doing that. For example, by allowing third-party providers to ship their own components. If you're Shopify, you might benefit from allowing third-party providers to ship their own components without having to constantly align with whatever it is the, yet your, the mothership framework, the mothership bundle, whatever React version that's using, somebody else can use whatever other framework they want, even if the other framework is an older version of React. Yeah. And if you're very neglectful of your own system, it might be a newer version of React that won't conflict with your sort of mothership platform. So that's, but, that's the whole point there. If you have that kind of business. Yeah, yeah for most internal projects, especially, uh, let's say, LinkedIn audience, most people I know are more the smaller type of businesses, startups, sometimes medium-sized with uh, smaller DevOps teams uh, or teams. Um, and if you only have one team and you have one major language for front end or framework for front end uh, and the same for back end, it might make sense to not try to wrap everything in a web component and as because there is not really a benefit. So Mike, I know that when you read books like micro front ends in action and all this kind of stuff, it's uh, from gears or gears or gears. I don't I forgot. It's actually a German person, I think who was it's Salando, I think. And the, the idea was that every part of the application, the inspiration part, the checkout part, uh, they are all mm -hmm. different 
components or let's say micro front end it was back then and one possible solution which was discussed after the book as well where web components are custom elements and the thing is if you are large enough that a single team is handling an entire context bounded context of a domain then it might make sense to go that way but most small companies just have their app and you don't you, you can create components but you necessarily don't really need web components for this you can have that because of isolation for example things like for example ionic framework is doing that ionic framework is using web components and custom elements to actually just place a button and then this button is a web component and it, you can do this if you like to do this but they have this idea that you can ship those little components it is more like a library type of idea to that you then can assemble those things but if you are at this stage where you assemble your app you don't necessarily need web components to componentize your application you can do that with things like react with objects if you don't want to re use any library or framework, then you can just use objects and create elements and you have the same. Do you really need an isolation layer in between, let's say, components if you write them yourself? I doubt it. It is not really a benefit. It's a benefit if you don't know what the other team is doing, the other provider, the third party too. No? What Ionic is solving is actually a much more complex problem. And it has to do with more native platforms like mobile phones and specifically one thing, the look and feel of the native platform, right? So what I, I, Ionic to some degree is opening up the playing field that it's opening up. It's opening up this architectural question of, I don't want, I don't want to render my component. I want the native platform to render my component, right? So I know that natively speaking, React Native does this very well. If I want to have a login button, there's a very particular way how the native platform handles a login button because it will have login suggestions from the secure storage of the mobile phone, of the person who's going to be logged in into the phone who's operating the browser. So if you do that yourself, you won't have access to that data. But if you let the native platform do that, you will have access to that data. You might have a React component for that, but then you might ask yourself the silly question, right? Where you say, wait, hold on. If the native platform is rendering it, why does it matter if the component is written in React or Vue? So you handle it from the middleware layer. If I have a React native component that says, give me that iPhone login thing, why does it matter in what language this abstract thing is written? That's what web components are trying to solve. And that's what Ionic is trying to solve to a large degree. And if you have cross-browser operability with React native and everything in that application is native, then you also don't need to have React because you're not using the React components, you're using the native libraries of the phones or some kind of common denominator, smallest common denominator across the most dominant mm -hmm. browser market, right? And then that is then being solved by saying, you might be a React developer, but for your application, it doesn't matter because you're just going to use native components. So I'm going to make available the React tooling and the JSX because you know how it works. And then you'll just create this generic thing and then the native thing will take over anyway. But if you're an Angular developer, I might expose the same kind of ecosystem mm -hmm. to you with Angular tooling. If you're a Vue.js developer, I'll just give you the Vue.js uh, tooling and you do your Vue.js thing. And then I will compile that into my, I, my, my sort of middleware layer. And then whatever I use then under the hood, which might as well be React Native, I then let that thing decide mm -hmm. how to render it on an Android, how to render it on an iPhone, how to render it on an old iPad compared to a newer iPhone.
Very good question. Yeah, Again, complex field. Uh, complex field, and none of us here are like really deep React native front end engineering expert. Uh, I, I think we have to specify that caveat. There are mm -hmm. people like, let's say, Nick Shoemaker, whom you can follow on LinkedIn. Like he specializes on enterprise level fintech React applications, like very large sort of corporate style React components and how to write them. And if, if you want to learn more about that, he's heavily into testing. Definitely follow Nick Shoemaker. Yeah. Ryan Azam is asking, is it a question? I don't know. Uh, as for Frontend, is it worth to use architectures like clean architecture, uh, probably uh, from Martin, uh, and how to dealing with better dependency injection? I wrote this as a question. So let's say clean architecture, everything with clean indicates that you should think about your architecture, that you should set up something which is maintainable, which is usable by others, which is running well, which is not complicated, which doesn't consume too much energy to read and understand. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you see that code in two months, you you don't need to ask yourself who, who, was, who, was, who was the author of this part of code yeah. because you don't like it anymore. This is the original idea of clean code, clean architecture. It is not so much about a specific way of implementing things out of a book which was originally written for Java, C Sharp or something else, then apply it to something like React. Yeah. So for React there are different ways to do that. There are there are even there are several different ways doing that. The most important thing is, and this is what I often do in CTO fellowships where we help teams with working with React, for example, is to how to organize, how to organize their applications, how to organize the code base, how to separate hooks and components and what's inside hooks, what's not inside hooks. How do you handle, for example, server side and client side rendering? This is a part of that as well. Which one do you want to do on which part? So you can write with Next.js, for example, you can yeah. write entire client-sided applications. You can write hybrid applications and you can write nearly entirely SSR applications as well, which are entirely hydrated on the client. You can write yeah. three different, entirely different ways and the architecture is changing as well. So what you need to do is determine what you need, then setting up an architecture and make it as easy and as natural to understand for everyone. So everyone can work natively speaking in, um, in this architecture without having too much trouble working in that. And this is how I would describe it. Those things were defined in books, which are quite old in an entirely different context, sometimes entirely different era. And we in, need to- in, archi in architecture heavily emphasizes this idea that there are rules to how dependencies are shaped. So what is allowed to depend on what? And I would recommend that aspect, right? So. Mm -hmm. React is an outside dependency. So the code that you write should use it. React should not know about your business problems. And that's a very high standard. It's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. And again, Nick Shoemaker is a very good target for this, along with Valentina Tsupac. They're specialists in refactoring and TDD in hexagonal architecture, especially Uncle Bob, Bob Martin, Robert Martin's version of clean architecture, which is slightly different than vertical size architecture that, or the more popular sort of uh, Microsoft clean architecture. Microsoft clean architecture is not the clean architecture from the book. A lot of people miss this. We had, so on the YouTube channel, Our Tech Journey, 
We have an old archive from my old streams. I had a little bit of series on Athena architecture, like four or five episodes. You can check that out if you want to learn a little bit more detail about, about this. Because clean architecture is not about your folder structure. It's not about where your components are living or in what order, how they are named. Clean architecture is really about making your project about your business, right? So when you, I open the project, it should, talk, it should speak mm -hmm. the language of your business. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be able to tell that you're using React just by looking at your project. Because a lot of people are using React architecture. They're using some kind of React template or view yeah. or next template. And then when I open the project, I can see that it's a React project copied from the boilerplate. Yeah. It's boilerplate. And it tells me nothing about the business. And mm -hmm. clean architecture. No, no business language inside, no domain no. language inside. Now, yeah. the important aspect of clean architecture is not that you've messed up. Clean architecture is actually then realizing that, hey, I need to clean this. This is actually a mess. Like me still using boilerplate code after my business is successful, that's actually a problem because I cannot get away from the boilerplate. The boilerplate is a general purpose solution. My business probably isn't. So at some point you will start fighting your architecture to serve the business. So the point yeah. of clean architecture is that you know how to refactor your architecture to make it cleaner. And then once you're at a very high level of, let's say, cleanliness, I would call it architectural quality, that you're actually not fighting the architecture anymore, that it's actually helping you move faster mm -hmm. forward, like move forward faster. Then you need to learn how to maintain that level of quality. Now, a lot of these books only tell you how to maintain this quality. They assume you start there and you stay there and then how to maintain it. That mm -hmm. is not the same thing as having a cool architecture and then having to do this like, huge effort to get it to a clean state so then from that day forward there's only maintenance the problem is this thing will be the equivalent of renovation but you don't want to rewrite the entire code base and mm -hmm. how to do that something like reading michael Feathers's book how to dealing effectively with legacy code yeah. that is more important or kent beck's new book tidy first will help you realize okay how do i refactor in a code base that is not test covered what are those really small steps that I can do every day? A little bit of cleaning, a little bit of tidying every day for years by the entire team for years. And then we get to the, then we get to the point where your messy code base only has one or two or three messy bits left and everything else has been cleaned. Yeah. And then you can tackle only those messy bits and then you can re-architect re or renovate just that one bit that's a really sore spot in your architecture but this is as well a topic for an entire season a session it's right? a topic for another session we are, it's also the topic of our book club right now we're reading tidy first in the book club and we got some feedback from kent beck and i think kent beck might be joining us for one of the sessions later this month i'll keep you updated this is not a pitch for the book club that's in the newsletters but join the book club even if it's not, the book not a pitch <laughs> yeah. yeah we're having a lot of fun istvan we have the next one istvan ah, okay. we missed so yeah, sorry, Hungarian. my dog was barking. <laughs> okay, we have DHH. DHH might have dropped TypeScript because of Ruby. Also, it's loosely typed, so they can use the same programming style. But for example, mm -hmm. the whole architecture of Rails is flawed because it is enforcing MVC on the framework level instead of the component level. So I would encourage anyone to follow DHH, DHHS mm -hmm. footsteps, but it is a completely different topic. Mm-hmm. So in general, just as a meta, meta topic is don't follow 
because of some influences like like we do mm -hmm. telling you something to do it is sometimes it was the same with microservices they uh, there was this drop of microservices back to monolith and someone is, is making or doubting uh, the own decisions in the past. So um, mm -hmm. it is always important to understand your own context, your own requirements before you do any decisions. Don't do something because others, others tell you to do that. This is like running after fashion. This is not what we engineers do. We are software engineers. We are engineers. We have a credo. We have a creed to follow. One of those is to understand what we do. Don't just sometimes what I see often is people dis make a differentiation between developers and engineers. Developers, this is a newer type which came sometimes in, in German in the German language. Those people came from the media aspect. So they were designers starting to code as well, and they were not acting like engineers. They were just doing and developing step by step by step until there was something. And then there yeah, were the engineers. Low quality in their craft. Yeah, and then there were engineers planning up front and then working. And today we have this mix of both, and we call this and this. And of course, engineers are developers. They develop a software, but you should not develop your code. What you should do is plan. This is the reason why we recommend TDD, where you make uh, you dig deep into what you actually want to do before you type the first letter. So you write the test, you write the the frame around it, the expectations, the inputs, the outputs. You define those. You exactly know what step. you get, and then you iterate step. by de develop this to the point where it's uh, from red to green. This is what yeah. you do then in the development step. But what you shouldn't do is just just be to, let's say, just hop into something, test it out and take a look how it works out. You can do this in side projects. This is totally fine for learning purposes. Totally fine, Don't, but not for business purposes. You need to know what the outcome is probably looking like. You can have an A-B test where you try to go into this and this direction and looks what works better. But you even in an A-B test, you know exactly what you want to do with A and B. And, yeah. But you just me measure the outcome, which you don't know exactly the unknowns. You get those. But this is what you need to understand. You are all software engineers, not developers. Try to use more the word engineering than development. And then in your head, manifest the idea that when even if DHH or I don't know who, who else says something, it is not, oh, you need to do this now, or Kent mm -hmm. Beck or anyone else sets written, has written a line in a book. This isn't like a law for us. This is input we need to understand, process, and put that into our own context and decide and determine, can we use that? Can we apply that? Does it benefit us? Does it benefit our product or will it hurt us? So you as an engineer, this is your job to determine that and clarify that to the business layer, to the to, to your people you need to report to if this is a good idea or not. It is not just, yeah, I'm just typing and let's take a look what happens in a week. Yeah. But if you do that, you are not a software engineer, sorry. Please keep that in mind uh, when you do things. You need to learn your things. You need to master your craft. This is what Brian Finster said very well in one of the clips we had together with him, was you need to master your craft. And as an engineer, you need to know what your craft is. Ask yourself the question as an engineer, do I know what my craft is? What I am supposed to do actually as an engineer, do you know that? Had you ever make sit down and think about that? Most developers, especially junior developers, never done that. So think about it. This is very important. Understand your craft and more importantly, understand your craft 
in the context of the business that yeah. you're currently solving. You can be a great cook, but if you're an Amazon delivery truck driver, the cooking skill isn't really being applied for the business. You're not going to be cooking on in the truck. So it's really important. You might be a front-end developer, but you might have a really important like data quality issue. Like you need to understand that mm-hmm. like your label, your job title has nothing to do with engineering problems in front of you. You need to understand the business context of how your craft is being applied because it'll always be applied partially and overlap with somebody else on the team or may- maybe an entire team of teams of professionals who rely on your input, but nobody alone can solve a problem. Okay, we have one more qu- comment. It is not stat anymore. Is there a reason for that? Dennis, Camilla? It is there. What's that? I don't know. Maybe it's just bugged. With the many JavaScript frameworks available today, some people advocate for building applications with plain or vanilla JavaScript, citing mm-hmm. potential performance benefits and reduced reliance on external libraries. In your perspective, what would be the optimal approach and how can one take an informed decision between using JavaScript framework and sticking with vanilla JavaScript for app development? Mm -hmm. I think we've covered this question several times already. Just to wrap it quickly up from my perspective is that it is first of all contextual. So you need to, as as I said, Mm -hmm. oftentimes today, you need to define those things. What do you need? What do you build? So you can't, it is, it is not a default answer to that. So if you build a small landing page is a different thing than an entire enterprise app, then you have totally different uh, things. How many teams will work on that product? Uh, how many people do you expect in the first 12 months to hire? Is your team able to work in a framework? Is your team able to work vanilla, which is hard. You need to, you, you can't start with five junior developers and say, hey, let's do a vanilla app from mm-hmm. Greenfield perspective. You can't do that. It's impossible. And those things you need to ask first before you start a project. And this is not only about vanilla versus framework. This is about everything in a project. Understand and determine context, determine requirements, non-functional requirements, and then think about that. So do you really need the performance improvement uh, when it comes to plain JavaScript files, instead of having some boilerplate or chunks you need to implement, download before you can run it. Do we really have that issue? For example, we've run over 20 apps in WebPAR in the, in the last, yeah, we still run them. And in none of those, this is a requirement or an issue. None. There's, we, we never had this issue. Everyone is talking about that. We never had this issue yeah. because our context is entirely different and it probably will stay like that in the next 10 years. So this is not an issue for me. And this is oftentimes the main reason people say to not use React is you have to download chunks beforehand. This is not an issue for most. But Mohammed asks, what, how can you make an informed decision between JavaScript framework mm-hmm. and sticking with the gen- vanilla JavaScript for app development? Mm-hmm. I think that's a non-issue. Yeah. The informed decision is you will be using a React or something similar for app development because you're developing probably. an app. So you'll probably be using React Native. If it's a web app, you might be doing a PWA and then using something React compatible or React's competitors. Now, now the real yeah. question is, because you mentioned performance, we need to ask the question performance of what? Performance of loading time, performance of mm-hmm. what? Business Demo. metrics, performance of development time, performance of the process of development, performance of delivery. You might deliver very fast, but it might take you four weeks to get through Apple's review because you made a mess. Mm-hmm. So you need to ask the performance of what exactly? Because in the context of you making these decisions, 
is always a positive and accidental byproduct of two things. Good business process and good architecture. That's how you get performance. Performance is good performance is delivered by a business who has business metrics for optimizing performance. Amazon, um, the Amazon, the, the store has performance metrics of if performance is below X, we lose this amount of sales. Mm -hmm. That is a very data-driven culture where performance can be very easily quantified. If you don't yeah. have that right now, if you don't have that data right now, if you don't even have something that's slow right now, and don't even have a framework of how to make this decision in a business context, then you're way prematurely optimizing and you should go with the industry standard, which in this case would be React. Mm -hmm. Whatever and everybody you, else says, uh, Don't React. forget. If you're don't... in a team, in a business building an app, if you're solo and you're doing something for fun for your portfolio, you can use whatever you want. The, the thing no is, uh, what, what, what's often a subjective problem, uh, not an objective one, uh, discussion especially, is when people say, hey, uh, let, let, let's stick with this performance issue because uh, it's lower. Then, then they take as an, as an example a bad React application or a bad yeah. React uh, framework application and take a look at a very small vanilla application and say, look how fast that is. That is not a comparison. That is, this is, there is, this is just ripped entirely out of context, which is a context in a context. So there is so much you need to consider to plan an app for an entire life cycle for the next 10 years, that this is actually also, one of those. Yeah. I have to jump off really quickly. I just want to get this thought across. There are some decisions that only make sense to make mm -hmm. with lack of data. So you might say, what framework should I use? Anything. But I can only make this decision while I'm not using anything and I don't have any code. Because I might say, I will use React, or I will use Vue, or I will use Svelte, or I will use whatever else, right? The, but the point is, that decision only makes sense to even ask that question in the absence of data. Because once you have data, once you have a million React components, you ask the question, what framework should I use? React, because you have a million React components. And once you have a team of 20 React developers, you ask the question, what framework should I use? React, because I have a team of 20 React developers. Right? Mm -hmm. If you have a team of 20 Vue developers, what framework will you use? Probably Vue, because right? we have 20 Vue developers and probably a bunch of Vue components and Vue functions. Right? So the good thing is there are not so much Angular developers out there anymore, so it's probably <laughs> not Angular. <laughs> and, uh, and most <laughs> Angular developers are secretly closet React developers <laughs> and oh, are slowly yeah. transitioning. So, right, so the important key is that if you have asked this question now from a position of no data, go create data. Try one of them, create data, and then decide, okay, now I have a bunch, I have five view components. I hate my life, I want to try something else. <laughs> then make that decision. Oh, or you do the same thing with React. I made five React components. I don't know how to use React. I started prop drilling. I'm going to use Svelte or Astro. Because I, I, if I have a tendency to fall into the trap of prop drilling, then I will use a framework that doesn't allow me to prop drill. Right? So I, you use the data to your advantage. But for a long-term decision, if there's going to be a team, if there's going to be a business, if there's going to be a, a sort of ecosystem that you'll need to rely on, go with one of the busy. 
Damn. So, so there's someone, the first Twitter, Twitter this comment. is the fir first Twitter oh, comment no. we have. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Not like this. It started. <laughs> so may maybe we should stop streaming to Twitter. Oh. So many, too many Angular devs there. No, no, joking. <laughs> Hello, Tega. No, Angular is okay. We just had a big <laughs> Angular project this year, and no one from us were basically firm with Angular, and it yeah. didn't went very well, let's say. And we were happy to went back to <laughs> React, to be honest. But this is a, so. Don't be scared. Quickly to to Max. Last question. No, this question is more statement. Sometimes you need to build an SDK for some business needs. So you don't really need to integrate your code with a library like React. You don't, you'd rather choose to go with pure JavaScript because the pros and cons business needs. So it depends on the context, like Adrian said. I want to quickly respond to that. So I think we've- Just before with... you start, I'll need to jump off because I need to check on the kids. So I will drop the link for tomorrow's session in chat, please sign up or put it in your calendar if you haven't already. Mm -hmm. We're doing tell, don't ask. We're following a software fundamental series and we're doing tell, don't ask, which is a concept that a lot of people get excited about and we're just going to play around with it tomorrow. Okay, so, great. To, to design thank, thank you very much, Dennis. See you tomorrow then. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. I think we've, we've, I think I need to move him off stage. So <laughs> I think we, in the last, let's say 15 years, we worked with a lot of organizations outside of our own organization, maybe as corporations, maybe in fellowships or mentorings. The point is most of them were working with frameworks and most of them, or let's say everyone who's working in an app-like code base, who was really working on a business app, a SaaS app, an application, an e-commerce system, we built them our own. Uh, by by our own in the in the past, were using some form of framework, and there were examples where people were using, for example, vanilla JS in web components. But this was basically every time that was when people had something, or let's say more like components they want to deliver in form of a library for other developers. So they were not really building a entire application themselves, and then. You, you saw a lot of not, yeah, let's say, non-framework non approaches, let's say. People were using vanilla JavaScript in web components or sometimes just vanilla JavaScript libraries to download and integrate with imports and require. Uh, this, 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 this. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm afraid. I, it's really loud on my here because of that microphone. <laughs> okay. Great. Good. Yes, I think uh, we've, we've went through all the comments. Last comment. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we, this was the longest session we had so far in our tech journey. Thank you very much for attending today. We need to close up now today. Tomorrow we will have the next one, same time, 16 CET. It's actually the Thursday version uh, of Dennis. So take a look at his account and next Wednesday, we will talk about the next topic regarding front-end and we will stay this month, at least this month on front-end technologies and front-end culture, front-end engineering. And next week will be Tailwind versus CSS, which is not only about Tailwind, of course, it is uh, like a, a representative thing 
where we talk about, let's say, things like like the tailwind, maybe bootstraps, something like this, and how those things evolved and how we can use uh, CSS on the other side or something in between, which was, for example, SCSS. It wasn't really in between, but a successor of SCSS, but now CSS is keeping up again. People question SCSS. And this will be the topic for next week. I will announce, I think, tomorrow morning. So take a look at my LinkedIn account, then you will see the invitation for that. I will invite you again for everyone who was participating today. And uh, yeah, that will be a good successor topic. And then we will take a look what we're doing the Wednesday after this one. But it will be definitely staying with the front-end technologies because uh, I wanted to start this year with front-end because this is my passion. Front-end is my passion, actually. Maybe we're going something into more web app like uh, PWA or not, PWA versus React Native, um, and those kind of things. There are so many things we can discuss. Camila, thank you for, for being being with us today, helping us getting those things done. Do you have anything to, to add to what I've just said? Um, yeah, sorry about the barking. It's a huge dog. I know it was very loud. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, yeah, I was afraid. <laughs> so sorry. No, but I really like these front-end topics as well. I think everyone can learn a lot about this. And I really think as a junior developer should be more involved in these topics. So here it's, it's amazing and I'm very happy to be here. Mm -hmm. Good. So uh, thank you everyone for being a guest. So lastly, I just want to show you again the image. There is a snackable dojo which will tackle some problems with bootcamp and uh, let's say becoming a junior developer, a real developer especially when it, so it will be about react tech stack with tailwind with recall state management with 10 stack query as api state and all these kind of things and it will solve some questions in four sessions each session will be one hour each thursday i think it was 3 p.m 15 cet and it's basically pro bono so it will cost you nothing but there will be only limited slots. So take a look. You can scan the QR code or take a look at the at the comments. You will find the link there. Or maybe I can post it again because it's I don't trust this one here. And I will post it into Twitter as well. There it is. And yeah, if you are a junior developer, if you are a pre-junior developer coming out from a bootcamp, that might be something for you. Take a look into it. This is basically a piloting project and maybe we continue to do that in the future as well with other things or with front-end exclusively. We will take a look, but this is just a little advertisement for that. If you're interested in, leave me a message in LinkedIn. Take a look at the page, what you need to do as a requirement or have as a requirement for that. So thank you very much. We have some left. Oh, no, it's just just it was an awesome one. Uh, great. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for participating. That was a great audience driven session today. Uh, really thank happy so to have those. Yeah, thank you. There will be a newsletter about ex this exact day and topic and clips on Sunday at Snackable CTO. Take a look at it. And on Wednesday, we will have the next topic then. So thank you very much. And I put us off stage now. Some elevator music. See you tomorrow. Bye bye. Thank you.